o'clock. And so I'm going to call this May 26, 2020 regular board meeting of the Shawnee Mission School District Board of Education to order. The first item on our agenda is the Pledge of Allegiance. So we will get that started. Still missing the kiddos leading us. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United, United States, States of America and to the Republic for which it stands. One nation, One nation under God, under God indivisible, indivisible, with, with liberty, liberty and justice, and justice for, all. for all. Thank you. Now we're moving on to item 1.3, which is the adoption of the agenda. I'll seek a motion. So moved, Mrs. Goodburn. Thank you, Mrs. Goodburn. Is there a second? A second. Thank Sinclair. you, Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that was unanimous. Moving on to item 1.4, approval of the minutes from the May 11th meeting. I'll seek a motion. I'll move approval. Second, Goodburn. Thank you, and was that Dr. Sinclair who made the motion? Yes, sorry. Thank you. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Okay, hearing none, that passes unanimously, and we move on to item 2.1, which is the superintendent report, and we'll send it over to you, Dr. Fulton. Okay, thank you very much. Well, great to see everybody this evening. It's hard to believe that we have held our last days of continuous learning with students for the 2019-2020 school year. This week, our teachers finish up with a work day and teacher-facilitated professional learning. I want to thank everyone for their work this year. So many have gone above and beyond to ensure our students continue to do their personal best despite really challenging circumstances. And I'm proud of the ways that we remain committed to ensuring each student has a personalized learning plan that prepares them to be college and career ready and getting them ready with the interpersonal skills they need for life success. And of course, we know that's both virtual skills and in-person skills, both matter. We wanna wish everyone a wonderful summer. As we head into the summer, I wanna share a few details about current guidelines in the district. School buildings continue to remain closed and will remain closed except for essential functions through July 16th. Access to buildings for essential functions will be managed by building principals. In order to promote safety, any patron who wishes to enter a district facility is required to wear a mask, except when in an individual enclosed office. And in compliance with the Kansas framework, we expect that outdoor activities such as uh, conditioning for fall sports and band practice may begin on July 6, 2020. As you know, guidance related to COVID-19 is regularly updated by federal, state, and or county authorities. We'll continue to follow plans laid out by Governor Laura Kelly and guidance from both state and county health departments to manage the spread of the COVID-19 virus. <clears throat> As we observe these guidelines and head into summer, we're really pleased that the free pick up and go meals provided by the Shawnee Mission School District Food Service Department will continue to be available through July 24th, 2020. Pick up and go meals are available on Mondays and Wednesdays from 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. at Comanche Elementary, Rose Hill Elementary, Shawano Elementary, and Hawker Grove Middle School. This service has provided thousands of meals to children ages 1 through 18 
in our community since continuous learning began. And we're so grateful to everyone in the food service department and the many volunteers who have dedicated their time and efforts to make sure that children continue to get the nutrition they need in their daily life. As always, I want to uh, bring some great news and updates from our staff and students, so let's do that now. Members of the Shawnee Mission Class of 2020 have been recognized in our community for their artistic excellence. A group of student artists were recently named recipients of Shooting Star Scholarship Awards from the Arts Council of Johnson County during a virtual gala. The following students were presented scholarships by the Art Council. Zach Doney from Shawnee Mission Northwest High School, who was second place in production and design. Vincent Schoen from Shawnee Mission East High School took a first place in strings. Brian Montre from Shawnee Mission East was first place in 3D visual art. Nina Kulikoff from Shawnee Mission South uh, was first place in 2D visual art. Julia Adele from Shawnee Mission West was second place in classical voice. And we're going to include a link to the names of all the Shooting Star nominees in the board recap later this evening. So congratulations to all of our students. National PTA has recognized three Shawnee Mission students for their artistic creativity in the National PTA Reflections Contest. In fact, the three winners in the state of Kansas were from the Shawnee Mission School District. They are all Award of Merit honorees for their interpretation of the theme, Look Within. The honorees are Claire Martin from Corinth Elementary, honored for dance choreography. J.U. Boshar from Briarwood Elementary, honored for music composition. And Eshia Bosar from Indian Hills Middle School, honored for music composition. So congratulations to these students. Well, obviously, it's been several months since our last in-person board meeting. I did want to acknowledge three individuals we have recognized as Shawnee Mission All-Stars since the last in-person meeting. Amy Nine, Westridge Middle School social worker. Bridget Fullerton, pre-kindergarten teacher at Rose Hill. And Brett Dane, Shawnee Mission North Building Manager. We have shared videos about their outstanding work on the district website and on social media, but I did want to take a moment with the Board of Education to recognize and say thank you to these individuals and for all that they do for the Shining Mission students. And with that, that concludes my report for this evening. Thank you. Um, moving on to board reports. Um, Ms. Borgman, do you have a report from I do. Um, so the first thing we SMAC wanted me to pass along is SMAC is working with the Kansas PTA to hold a virtual leadership conference in June. So stand by for more information on that. Um, congratulations to the National PTA Reflection winners that were just announced by and recognized by Dr. Fulton. And there's also a long list of citizenship winners that um, should also deserve that also deserve a little recognition as well. Um, 
the state of Kansas PTA citizenship winners. The topic was the leader in me and the essay winners, grade level five, Jonathan Del Rio, grade level six, Marley Risco, grade level seven, Greta Kelly, grade level eight, Nathan Phillips, and sophomore, Kalia Peterson, junior, Amelia Gibbs, senior, Alice Newell, an award of merit goes to Jace Lind, who's in fifth grade, and then the award of excellence in poetry, fifth grade, Carolyn Graham, sixth grade, Gabriela Gonzalez, freshman, Oscar Ole, sophomore, Campbell Wood, uh, junior, Gracie Rip, and senior, Trinity Martin. So congratulations to all those students. Thank you. Um, moving on to Ms. Henry, do you have an update for us from the Education Foundation? Yeah, I just want to take a brief moment to thank the so many PTAs around Shawnee Mission School District that have contributed some of their year-end funding to the CARES Fund. With the school year ending in unexpected ways, a lot of PTAs had some additional funding and um, they were so kind to pass it to the CARES Fund, especially um, so far it's been Belinder, Brookwood, John Deemer Elementary, Prairie, Ray Marsh, and Trailwood. Um, I know it's a huge help to the CARES Fund right now, so thank you. Thank you, and thank you to the PTAs for doing that. Um, and Reverend Guy, do you have an update for us from KSB Board of Directors? Um, they are offering their last Wednesday Lunch and Learn tomorrow. I've participated in several of them. I've seen Dr. Sinclair on the screen um, in several of them. And uh, they've been very informative and helpful. And uh, so there's one more opportunity tomorrow. I think they've been so popular though that there's a strong likelihood they'll continue to offer them uh, possibly next year. And then the board of directors will be meeting virtually the um, first Saturday in June. So I will be a part of that meeting and we'll have more updates then. That's all. Thank you. Um, moving on to Dr. Sinclair, do you have an update for us as a legislative liaison for KSB? I believe Dr. Little will have us covered this evening in his presentation. Great. Um, the policy Review Committee, Ms. Goodburn, do you have an update for us from that committee? Uh, we have three policies on the agenda tonight, 5.03, 5.04, and 5.05 later in the meeting. And our next meeting, I believe, is Thursday, June 11th. Jessica, you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's uh, June 11th. Great, thank you. Uh, and finally, Mr. Stratton, do you have an update for us from the Finance and Facilities Committee? Yes, uh, the Finance and Facilities Committee will meet again tomorrow at two o'clock, and it's available for public viewing on our district website. And uh, all the meetings are archived on YouTube as well for viewing. We've met twice already, the last two meetings, um, extensive uh, discussion and analysis of both the finances of the upcoming budget conversation, as well as uh, our last meeting where Bob Robinson spoke to some of the upcoming projects that are being explored for uh, facilities. Tomorrow, our board, will, our committee rather, will spend some time talking about uh, the presentation that Mr. Knapp's going to provide today around uh, the operations side of our budget. And then uh, we will also spend some time looking through a whole list of questions that the committee gathered that would be helpful to uh, include on our communications on our finance uh, website within the district. These would be questions that the public would be interested in having a better understanding of our finances. Uh, we're asking the committee to help the entire district and the board to find ways to communicate even more clearly 
what uh, what might be the questions that are out there around the finances of the district. So we'll be going through those questions tomorrow as well. That's it. Thanks. Thank you. Um, moving on to item 2.3, the board financial report. I'll turn it over to Dr. Fulton, who can introduce us to Russ. Yes, uh, Mr. Russ Knapp, our chief financial officer, will provide the board with their monthly financial report. Yes, well, good evening and thank you. Uh, attached to the board agenda is the monthly board financial report. This is revenue and expenditures through the month of April. So we, this would reflect about a month and a half of kiddos being out of school. So we're starting, we're starting to see the uh, actual savings in our budgets as we uh, uh, report out. So the savings are in our certified substitute costs, our student transportations, our uti uh, utilities, and then our travel costs. So this is reflected in. Um, Almost a $2.8 million surplus that I'm projecting for the current year, which I'll, I'll touch on later during my presentation. Also, it's reflecting some savings in our federal dollars. So those would be carryover uh, grant allocations since we can spend those on professional development and travel uh, in the months of it, uh, May and June. Um, the one item that's still out there for operating revenue is the special education reimbursement rate. Um, that process goes through May. All school districts submit their claims in the month of May. And then uh, once the state gathers all those, then they set that final reimbursement rate, um, usually that first week of June. And if you recall last year, we had a, a nice surprise where they uh, decreased it considerably at the end of the year. It was about a, I want to say about $300,000 reduction. Um, so we'll see. That's the one thing that we have out there that we really don't know about as revenue-wise. Um, and that's my report, and I'll stand for any questions. Thank you. Um, I'm not able to see everyone. Does anyone have any questions for Mr. Knapp at this time, or do you want to hold your questions for the budget workshop? Just speak up if you would like to ask now. Mr. Knapp, could you repeat, uh, this is Mrs. Goodburn, could you just repeat mm -hmm. what those four areas were? It was the subs, the utilities, the travel costs, and there was one more. Uh, student transportation. Okay, yeah, awesome. Okay, thanks. That's all. Mm -hmm. Are there any further questions? All right, hearing none, I guess we'll see you in just a minute, Mr. Neff. Yes. And we'll move on to the legislative update um, from Dr. Little. Uh, with us this evening, Dr. Little. Okay. Can't hear you. Uh, they may be muted. Does that help? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Thank perfect, you. Perfect. All right, great. Sorry. Um, you all should have a written report from me, and I'm going to talk through a couple of, of issues. I knew exactly what I was going to say until about 3.45 this afternoon when the governor had a press conference and vetoed legislation and called the legislature back. So I'll do the, the best I can to, to tell you what I think is going to happen and, and uh, be happy to answer some questions. First of all, without regard to what what happened with the today with the veto, a couple things when the legislature came back last Thursday, stayed for essentially about 24 hours straight and then came home, was that there were no changes that were involved related to any of our funding issues or any funding for K2, K-12 higher education. There may be some issues later on as we get into the next fiscal year. And of course, we have the $650 million budget hole. But for now, there was nothing done to the budget 
by the legislature when they came back. And so there are none of those just issues that are out there. We did, when we got to the end of the regular legislative session, we had a, a, a pretty wide range of, of, of education policy issues were out there and nothing that was really kind of rising to the top. Uh, we kind of came back for the veto session and had a little bit of time for the folks who were not on the judiciary and, and budget and tax committees. But um, so there's one piece of education legislation that was passed, and I'll, I'll talk about that briefly. But obviously, last week when we were here, the vast majority of the time and energy was spent on what's being described as the COVID response bill, which was a bill that I describe in, the, in your, your written report that should be posted online, uh, is that um, it involved dealing with healthcare and business liability issues uh, with the power of the, the governor's office versus or in conjunction with local local health departments to deal with the, the COVID uh, pandemic and then and restrictions on the governor's power and ability and on your local county health officer's ability to make those changes uh, or to, to implement policy. And then there were also an interjection of legislative control over the federal COVID dollars that were coming in, which totaling up over about $2 billion now. And historically for 40 or 50 years, when federal funds come in, the governor has the authority to, to budget those and use those. It goes through the budget process. It's in a budget bill, it's approved, and then the governor does what uh, they uh, want to do with those funds. This bill would have required the state agencies to go to the legislative coordinating council made up of only legislators make a budget recommendation and then the legislative uh, or the legislative budget committee first and then the legislative uh, coordinating council would have to approve the expenditures of those funds it's a very significant change in what public policy has been with regard to the budget so there were those those three big issues in their liability issues uh, the the governor's powers and then the legislature taking a role in there in that process and that was the bill that was sent to the governor that she vetoed today uh, there were and I'll talk a bit about that in a minute the other large policy issue that was passed which has an impact on your, your local governments had to do with changes in some local tax policy as you all may recall uh, local units of government, counties and cities have been living under the tax lid for about the last five years, which caps the growth on uh, on taxes and growth of local governments. And there was a bill that was passed that repealed the tax lid, imposed something that's called kind of a truth and taxation law to where uh, uh, cities and counties, water districts, anybody would be able to increase taxes and not be subject to the lid, which you would have to go through a process of of public hearings and then take a vote on it. There's nothing particularly unusual about that. You all take a public vote on your budget as well, but it was it was part of a, an agreement on a variety of issues that, that took the tax lid off. So um, th those were the main issues. There was one education bill that passed. I have a brief summary of that in there uh, in, in my written report. It was uh, House Bill 2010, had to do with dual enrollment. One of the most interesting things was a foster care reporting requirement which uh, Department of Children and Families and the State uh, Board of Education will be required to track and provide uh, reports and data on kids in foster care, uh, uh, disciplinary problems, uh, assessment scores, pull those all into a centralized place, a better job of tracking kids that have those mobility issues uh, in the child welfare system, and a couple of other small things in that bill. There's a summary there. 
What's going to happen on the, the governor this afternoon vetoed the bill that came to her that had the restrictions on her power, limitations on her ability. A sense week, and, and I'll try to characterize it as briefly as possible, is that there was a kind of a growing effort that we can see in many other states about the desire to move on and start opening up the economy and, and moving into a next phase. As you know, the governor as well had been going through phasing in, opening up the economy. And the legislature showed up and had this one one day period to come in and, and make some changes. And I think everything and anything that folks thought about in a legislative role were included in the bill. It uh, obviously took 24 hours to get it done. Uh, legislature worked all night, got the bill to the governor. And it was uh, um, it was it, it was frankly a, a, a pretty significant assertion of legislative uh, authority over the administrative responsibilities but to the extent and I think one of the things that's important that was part of what the governor talked about today was the 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 root of a lot of health, public health issues are rooted in your local county health department officers who have extensive authority to everything from quarantine to all kinds of things that they can do at the local level and one of the issues in this, as it passed, was it was going to leave all the governor's power, executive orders and those kinds of things in, but said you can't do anything else unless you get legislative approach. We all know there's a certain amount of politics that factors into that. The other issue was that it was going to put constraints on local county health officers. So, to, so right now, the county health officers can make decisions about public health. This was going to require county commission approval officer uh, may have determined. So in the same way, it was a sense, it was a sense of, of adding a level of, of, of political conversation into the public health conversation. And as she described today, that's part of why she factored in a veto. So the governor did veto the bill. She's called a new special session to start next Wednesday, the 3rd of June. Um, a couple of things I would say about a special session. There are no limits to what can be discussed. There is no limit on how long they're there. And once the legislature shows up in Topeka, the governor has no authority to stop them, to, to cancel it, to call it off, to say, okay, we're done. The legislature, uh, as, a, as a second branch of government, will have the power to move forward and do what they want to do. A tremendous number of issues, uh, what may be explored. The governor has very strictly said what she wants is that the authority she has right now is to extend the emergency another 15 days. She wants the legislature to come back and ideally extend that authority out to January of 2021, which is what the original resolution did. Otherwise, she can do about 15 more days, and then uh, that's probably all she's going to be able to do. She has already today announced that the state's guidelines for phasing out are now no longer the state's guidelines. Those are just recommendations. And any decisions that will be made about local is about opening of, of program will all be based on what your local uh, county health officers uh, make decisions about. So you can have 105 different decisions now about what's going forward because she, by, by vetoing the bill, it limited her ability to have some of that authority. So it'll be asking the legislature to clarify that, give her some of that authority when they come back. The reality is the legislature will do whatever they choose to do when they come back. And um, um, the last thing I might say is if 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 went back, nothing is still alive. Any bills that were dealt with during the legislative letter, they're all dead. They're wiped off the books. 
if somebody wants to pass legislation, things have to go back through the committee process, be introduced as bills, those kind of things. So it'd be long, slow process to make any kind of significant action other than maybe emergency fix. But um, like I said, there's no limits. I'm back next Wednesday. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you, Dr. Little. Um, that was a little depressing. So I will go through our list of folks to see if they have questions. I'll start it off with Ms. Boardman. Do you have any questions for Dr. Little? Well, I actually have a question in the packet that we were given um, from Dr. Little, just kind of a summary, um, as well as the Kansas State Department of Education report to K through 12 education 20 um, from Dr. Randy Watson. Um, it outlined uh, a timeline for you know, how the state education is looking at um, really what the fall is going to look like. And so it says in stage one, it wraps up at the end of May, um, developing competency and learning. Stage two begins June 1st, looking at how to implement new competencies, what and what and how to open schools and ensure safety, which is voted on by the state board on July 14th and 15th. Um, and I just was wondering if this is the same timeline that Shawnee Mission is following, um, or will we have kind of a, our own timeline in the weeks to come? Well, we, we are working on a timeline that we can a process timeline that we can uh, communicate with the board and uh, community about here in the not too distant future. It'll have some of the same elements that the state timeline has. It is important to note that before we can finalize our district timeline, we're gonna to need to have this information from the state. Mm -hmm. So I think most districts, ours included, are beginning to uh, put together scenarios of what school might look like uh, in the fall. There's lots of logistical planning that has to be done. That's, that's what we're working on right now. I have a timeline that I'll be able to share with you and with the community here in the not too distant future. I will note too, the thought exchange that we uh, just completed is gonna be part of the information we're gonna use to inform uh, what we do in the fall, as well the, the survey that we had uh, parents, students and staff recently complete. So, okay, more to come. Yeah, thank you. I know <laughs> it's a tough position to be in, but we appreciate the work. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, moving on to Mr. Stratton, do you have any questions for Dr. Little this evening? I do. Uh, this is a question that I reintroduce from previous questions, but I'll ask it again because things are changing very fast. Um, obviously, there wasn't much in the way of budget discussion in that one day special session. Doesn't sound like we're going to have it again coming up. Um, so is the ball 100% in the governor's court to analyze the revenue numbers that are coming in and eventually make the first move on allotments? We're going to be talking in a minute here about our budgets, and within 75 days, we have to submit our final budget, and we're trying to figure out what the revenue side is going to look like. Any Anything else we should be watching to figure out what that revenue looks like? Well, um, no, I don't have any keen insights in like the in terms of recovery and what revenue will look like. I, I can say that I would not expect the governor to probably do any no action at the state level until at least after mid-November. And I say that because that's when the next round of revenue estimates will be made. And so the revenue estimators will project the next 18 months. 
By that time, you will have a couple of things have happened. Number one, by July 15th, people will be making uh, their April 15th tax payments, and we'll have some idea of what was uh, was delayed and how close we were to how much money was coming forward. By uh, November, by by August, we'll have some of the delayed property taxes and the second payment of property taxes. We're going to have a lot of things happen, plus see how rolling out, going back to school and reopening works out and how quickly people go back to business. Uh, and if if that and I think there's there's almost no reason for her to make any changes until after those November revenue estimates, because then she'll have a good sense and she'll be able to make some adjustments and potentially anything that would need to be done could be set up to be go with her budget that she would submit. The last thing I would say is. You never know as we're getting into a fall election cycle when the feds may step up and provide some additional revenue to plug revenue gaps uh, before folks go into a November election. So that's always looming out there. So I don't expect anything immediate. I wouldn't be there. There may be some talk of legislators going in next June next week and saying, why don't we save the governor some trouble and cut two, three hundred million dollars out of the budget, send her a budget bill. Uh, and I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. And, you know, it's only been two hours and I haven't heard any rumors yet, but you never know that may happen. All right, thank you. Thank you. Ms. Henry, do you have any questions for Dr. Little this evening? Um, I don't know if it's a Dr. Little question or a Dr. Fulton question or a little bit of both, but when it comes to these decisions about what the fall looks like, um, can you help me understand who the various seems like there's a lot of cooks in that kitchen. We have the county health department, the state health department, the state department of education. We have the house K-12 budget committee. We have the governor. Who, what role do all of these various entities play in deciding what the fall looks like? And maybe most importantly, from my perspective, what, what decisions will our administrative team and our board need to be making? Sure, great question. Well, as we heard tonight, it, uh, things always adjust a little bit as you go, uh, as the days and weeks go by. Big picture, I think we've seen um, uh, pretty clear evidence that when things really get to a breaking point, the governor has the authority to step in, or at least has had the authority to step in and, and make some decisions about school being in session. The, the state, so the governor will provide guidance. The State Department of Education and State Board will certainly have a say on that in terms of guidance. But I think that the challenge going forward will be um, you know, what happens if you have differences uh, on the ground in terms of, uh, of the way in which COVID-19 may or may not be spreading in a community? That's going to be really under the, under the authority of the state health department, but also the county health departments. So what we do is we work very closely with all of those entities. And then as a, as a Johnson County uh, group, we talk about where we are with these directives, how we're applying them. Uh, we recognize that consistency across the county is really helpful to, to parents, to employers, and uh, we do the very best we can to come up with a, co a cohesive plan. At the end of the day, uh, the Board of Education and it, administratively, we have responsibility for our district, but we do have to make our decisions in the context of the framework that's provided to us by these other entities. So that's that's the challenge that we face. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, you, 
have a certain number of hours that you have to attend school in Kansas. That's statutory. We don't have the authority to waive that. Neither does the State Board of Education or the, or the State Education Department. So uh, there are certain things that are beyond our control. Uh, we may get some flexibility in that area. That is yet to be seen. So we'll just have to uh, make plans and then adjust as conditions require us to do so. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Thank you. Reverend Guy, do you have any questions for Dr. Little this evening? I don't have any at this time. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Goodburn, do you have any questions for Dr. Little this evening? No question. No questions. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Sinclair, I saved you for last. Do you have any questions for Dr. Little this evening? Um, it's kind of a pre-COVID question, or pre-COVID, a pre-veto um, um, question. Uh, I listened in to the committee um, hearing when Dr. Watson and Dale Dennis were presenting the state plan, and um, and it kind of struck me in the, the data that um, thinking about barriers to learning and logistics that need to be addressed before opening um, schools to ensure safety of students and staff. Um, the presentation was really talking about number of districts or percentage of districts that um, identified uh, certain barriers and to what extent is it has conversation ever been about number of students rather than um, number of districts? Because I think about a district like ours and those that are similar, we might be a handful of districts experiencing a certain barrier but proportionately, we represent a much significant, much larger portion of the student population. So if the legislature is going to be thinking about allocating dollars to barriers and concerns to help schools, you know, open safely, does that kind of conversation ever enter in number of students versus number of districts? Well, my recollection from the, the committee meeting at that time was that was not part of the conversation that took place. I would agree with your assessment. Um, I think that will be one of the things, depending on what the barriers are and what the solutions are, that may de depend on uh, what it is. I think that lots of what we get into are conversations about um, rural uh, school districts and kids having trouble accessing the Internet. I would suspect if we go back to a distance learning uh, mm -hmm. model at some point uh, numerically that may be just as significant in a place like Shawnee Mission as it may be in a in a in a the large number of rural districts and that's something I think if we're going to be crafting solutions need to make sure that that the that the the perception of solutions are make sure that they're solutions that are for everybody I understand mm -hmm. that but that hasn't been part of the conversation so far okay thank you Thank you for your report. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Um, I have a question, Dr. Little, and I don't know that you'll be able to answer it because it is, I actually did hear rumor, and so you said you hadn't heard any, so I, this may be premature. Maybe you can get me information later, but um, when we're counting our um, number of students that are enrolled in the district, um, are there any clauses or contingencies that would alter that if the students are being counted because they're 100% online? Or would that full-time enrollment, enrollment number be the same for a completely online kiddo? 
Oh, I don't know what the distinction is if you're enrolling, for example, in one of the virtual uh, programs that are operated by some of the districts. That might be something muddled, but I I have not had a heard tell of anybody digging into if you're making any changes to what your uh, your student count is, but not that districts making the changes, but right. maybe the changes being dictated by others. Right. So. Okay, if you do hear anything about that, just please let us know. It's officially on my radar. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, thank you for joining us tonight, and we will move on to item 2.5, public comments. Um, so, in accordance with board policy BCBI, a time for public comment occurs at regularly scheduled Board of Education meetings to provide an opportunity for individuals to address the board regarding the school district issues. For virtual board meetings, patrons are encouraged to electronically submit their request to speak at public comment by 5 p.m. the Friday before a regularly scheduled board meeting. The form for electric submission may be found at the Board of Education webpage on the district website. This early submission may allow the district to research and or address the patron concern prior to the meeting. All requests to participate in public comment must be submitted to the clerk of the board by no later than 12 p.m. the day of the board meeting. This will allow the clerk of the board, Terry Wintering, to uh, contact the individual and to provide them with information on how to enter the CAA, um, the safety requirements such as wearing a mask, the room from which they will be speaking, and the order in which they will speak. All speakers are limited to three minutes. Requests for aids or services for persons needing assistance to address the board should be made with appropriate advance notice. And there are a few reminders that help speakers have a constructive and positive experience when presenting their comments to the board. When making remarks, please proceed to the video device area when your name is called. And when directed, please share your name, city of residency, and what schools your children attend if applicable, and the name of any group organization you're representing. In consideration of everyone's time, please select a group spokesperson to represent your interests, or you may choose to pass when your name is called if a previous speaker has already expressed your concerns. Written comments and or materials will be accepted and should be emailed to the clerk of the board for distribution prior to 12 p.m. the day of the meeting. And those electronic copies will be provided to the Board of Education members and the superintendent. Please speak into the video device and limit your remarks to three minutes. Um, complaints regarding students or staff should be addressed to administration in accordance with standard board policy KN. If that procedure has been completed, the board will consider whether to hear such complaints in executive session in order to protect the privacy interests of the student or staff involved. If comments pertain to an item on the meeting's agenda, the board president may ask the superintendent or his or her designee to address those comments at that time or when the item is up for board discussion. And generally, responses from board members during public comment will be limited to clarifying questions. So we have one person up for our public comments this evening. Lisa um, Feingold, are you with us on the line for your comment? I am. Okay, um, and we will get the timer started and it is your time. Okay, um, I just want to say thank you for reinstating public comment. Um, okay, I know if you had the hook ready. Because I was one of the people who asked for it, that it'd be available, especially with budget, budget workshops, budget information coming up, the uncertainty with state legislature. So thank you for working that out. Um, there were a lot of things that I was hoping for um, in this agenda, and the student handbooks being updated was one of them, and I'm, I'm excited about that. And the responsiveness to Canvas, because I know a lot of 
patrons were concerned about multiple platforms and online learning. And uh, so I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, the thing that I am concerned about is as budget planning goes forward, not so much the financial aspects, because I know that's not something that is known completely right now with COVID, but I'm more concerned with the budget profile. And I'm hoping that this year some additional items will be listed under challenges. Historically, Shawnee Mission has only listed state funding and legislation issues under their challenges as a district. And I don't feel that that's accurate and that that's really fair. Um, a lot of other districts have shared challenges that we also have that they list recruiting, developing, retaining diverse staff, um, technology issues, connectivity issues, uh, raising student achievement and closing the achievement gap. Uh, those are all things that are also challenges for Shawnee Mission. Um, and in the budget today, under the donation section, there are some schools that are um, lucky enough to have a donation of almost a quarter of a million dollars for personnel. And I'm hoping that as you all look at things, and I know it's challenging that Keep in mind that, I mean, it'd be great if I had a quarter of a million dollars to donate to some of my area schools, that would be awesome, but how you might consider that as you make plans. So I'm under my three minutes, I think. That's all I've got. So thank you for, thank you for reinstating public comment. I hope some other folks um, take advantage of it since I think they also wanted that opportunity, so. That's it. Thanks. Thank you. Have a good evening and stay safe. Thank you. All right. Um, moving on to our discussion items for the evening. Um, item 3.1, strategy 2.1.3, discipline coding and disproportionality. We'll turn it over to you, Dr. Fulton. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. Um, make sure my mic's on. It is. Tonight's presentation on discipline coding and disproportionality reflects Shawnee Mission's commitment to address the issue of equity and student outcomes. You know, run a journey. And that journey requires honest evaluation and an institutional commitment to improving important academic and behavioral outcomes that are connected to students' success, uh, those that are essential to achieving our strategic plan mission and objectives. Academic achievement and student behavior are all our responsibility. And that responsibility includes using data to inform changes in our adult behavior, support student in their success. Tonight, Dr. Ed Strike, Chief of Student Services and a team of presenters that he'll introduce, will provide an overview of progress that we've made on strategy 2.13 as it relates to this issue. And we'll also speak to and respond to questions about a connected item in, consent agenda, in the consent agenda 4.16, which is approval of the student handbooks. You know, the handbooks were updated to address changes in district policy, which is now broadened to be uh, more inclusive in its language. 
And also, uh, we added to those handbooks a discipline matrix, and we'll talk about that tonight. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Strike and his team. And as they're presenting, I'd remind all presenters, make sure, and when you're speaking, uh, if you're, you're able to, then turn on your video so we can see you while you speak. Dr. Strike, it's all yours. Thank you, Dr. Fulton. Before we start, I want to thank the team of educators who served in various <clears throat> that were described in the program evaluation and who are not in attendance this evening. This work has provided great insight into improving our district's discipline plan. We do have three administrators who have worked tirelessly to orchestrate this action step as a part of our strategic plan, and they're outlined and will be presenting this evening. So next slide, please. They're listed here for your review. Next slide, please. The focus of this action step centered on the ability to create a collaborative team to calibrate consistency and discipline coding practices and to evaluate discipline data for disproportionality. Tonight's program evaluation is the continuation of the work that was started during the 2018-19 school year where a program evaluation regarding student success was presented to the board and the public on January 14, 2019. This work, which is found in this evening's board docs, present three focus areas that were started prior to the development of our current strategic plan. We have accomplished much regarding three of these focus areas this year as guided <coughs> work and they include evaluating programs that support students in self-regulation as a means to reduce disciplinary activity and develop a diversity and inclusion plan to enhance educators and meeting the needs of all students. And finally, to create and collective practice to remove barriers for all students to reach their fullest potential. Next slide, please. It is a crucial fact that we understand an overwhelming majority of our students never have a disciplinary referral. They never come to the office for any type of intervention and or consequence. This program evaluation this evening centers on the connection to the strategic plan and that we want our students to develop and utilize personal resilience. We want our students to develop interpersonal skills to be engaged in empathetic learners and and we also we understand that the research on school climate is overwhelming in that it can show we can either improve student attendance and achievement or we can decrease this and part of the mechanism through which student or student discipline is applied is to serve as interventions and try to promote a positive learning environment for all next slide please and dr mckinney you're up it should come as no surprise that when students feel safe, valued, and respected, attendance rates go up, academic achievement and graduation rates increase, and discipline-related issues go down. Strategy 2 requires every member of a district commit to a full, unified, equitable, and inclusive culture. And this is done by fostering respectful, trusting, and caring relationships. And this responsibility extends beyond just staff members and students. Everyone involved in a student's life plays an important role in the discipline process. When Shawnee Mission staff members and families communicate, build relationships, and commit to the safety and success of each and every student, we're more able to quickly identify challenges facing our students and work together to rally resources and provide support 
before discipline comes into play. As the slide notes, it truly does take a village. And as a district, our focus should be on prevention rather than consequences. To that end, it's essential that every person in a student's life communicate with one another and commit to their role in a student's success. Doing so will allow us to be proactive rather than reactive, and not just with discipline, but in all aspects of our students' lives. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you this evening. Next slide, please. Thank you, Dr. McKinney. Uh, it's a pleasure to get to talk to you tonight concerning the Discipline Committee's scope of work. And building on what Dr. McKinney said and Dr. Strike and Dr. Fulton, we really had five themes that we worked on. And one was positive school culture. We wanted to build trust, relationship building, academic achievement, and we wanted to provide accurate data review. And as we go down the bullets on the slide here, our first task was to redesign the disciplinary mechanisms to promote a consistency within Skyward. What we did there was define our terms. We created a discipline matrix that can be used K through 12, allowing participation by the stakeholders, administrators, staff, student and family. We then revamped the offensive codes and action codes to promote consistency across our reporting in K, uh, grades K through 12. Foster stakeholder participation in the process. By allowing a transparent process, that would provide a multitude of strategies in providing a discipline consequence for students. This would help to create a positive school culture that would lead to trust, relationship building, and academic achievement with our students. Streamline the offense and action codes to promote equity and fairness. The reductions of the codes was a critical component in providing a platform so that our administrators could have some type of calibration among K through 12, and this would help provide accurate data. Enhanced consistency in the disciplinary process for all SMSD students will now have one discipline instrument that will be used district-wide. This will assure that SMSD administrators, students, families, and communities will have a consistent model that will be followed through each of the students' school years in SMSD. This again will allow us to collect accurate data. Improve communication between student, parent, and teachers. By using the discipline matrix, it is a document meant to promote engagement between administrators, staff, student, and family. The discipline matrix will encourage conversations building on trust, relationship building, and academic achievement. Next slide, please. Craft a district discipline statement based on the strategic action plan's nine beliefs. We thought this was imperative moving forward that we shape our statement based on those nine beliefs that would get us in line with the strategic plan. Reduce offensive codes, we reduced them from 99 to 60. And this was done to promote accurate data reporting so that the buildings could use in their yearly uh, review. Use discipline matrix with consistent definition for offenses. This will allow us to accurately calibrate among all administrators the ability to be consistent in reporting discipline offenses district-wide. Reduce the action codes from 41 to 24. Again, this was to promote accurate data gathering by our schools. Design and increase accuracy in reporting 
and data analysis. By using one instrument, the discipline matrix, and allowing precise coding, this will improve our discipline data reporting across all grade levels. Targeted to create more equitable and disciplined approaches. By using the discipline matrix, it will provide a range of consequences along with interventions that administrators can use as a tool. No longer will one size fit all. The discipline matrix will enhance school culture, promote trust, relationship building, and academic achievement for our students and stakeholders. Streamline special education guidance regarding the discipline process. This will allow special education stakeholders a seat at the table, assuring that best practices will be followed. Thank you for your time. Next slide, please. So I'm gonna discuss with you tonight a little overview over disproportionality. Um, disproportionality is an area that we are obligated to report um, specifically under the areas of identification of students, placement of students, and discipline of, stu of students um, with disabilities. Uh, some important back information for you to have is that in 2016, there were some regulation changes at the federal level in regards to the criteria in which districts um, needed to report. Um, that change was delayed into action until May of 2019. Uh, over the next slide, I'm gonna go over um, our specific data. Slide, please. So I think it's important to understand that when you look at Shawnee Mission data um, as a whole, um, with when it comes to disproportionality, the lower the number, um, that is the, the more positive um, your district is performing. And so, um, as I mentioned in the previous slide, the data regulations changed and we had a 4.0 risk ratio in 2016. Um, that was changed to a 3.0 threshold, but but remember, that information did not go into play until 2019. So as you can see, we have um, over the course, with the exception of the 16-17 school year, we have seen um, an overall decline um, as it relates to not only our discipline, but our identification um, and our placement practices are well below the threshold. Another piece of information I think it's important to, to notate as we as an organization continue to reflect on our global practices, it's important that we continue to disaggregate that data um, in all areas, whether it be our academic performance or our discipline performance, um, and really break down to um, the subgroups uh, and drilling down to the individual students so we can continue to make progress um, with each individual student um, in the work that we do. Next slide, please. Some of the items that were completed over the disproportionality work this school year um, was just um, first and foremost an overall informational aspect of, of identifying what disproportionality is, um, what it means, um, and how we can work to remediate it. So our starting point was drilling down to specific building data, um, sharing that information with our building principals 
uh, initially of our higher rated buildings or our higher at risk buildings and then progressed and provided an overview of training to all of our buildings. Um, with that, we also conducted a review of our board policy and district guidelines to ensure that we didn't have any practices um, or policies that would be conflicting with the work that we were looking to do. Uh, a deep root cause analysis was completed um, and that information was compiled and, and submitted to KSTE. Next slide. Ongoing work that we're going to continue with. We've seen great results thus far with our deep equity training. We'll continue that the work that we're doing at our individual buildings and our district as a whole. Continuing those PLC and RTI practices as it relates to not only the academic side of things, but as it relates to the behavioral and social and emotional aspect of student learning. Um, as Mr. Kramer established earlier in the presentation tonight, we have a number of systems changes that we are linking together to create a more cohesive approach for our building administrators um, and to streamline our communication and our practices. Uh, another aspect is um, supporting buildings and identifying their specific success gaps and then creating interventions and adjustments that we can put into place to ensure all students' needs are being met. Next slide, please. Any questions? We'll be happy to respond to any questions that the board may have. Um, I have a question, Dr. Sinclair. Yes. My, my apologies, I was on mute. I was trying to tell you. Oh, no, I was <laughs> waving. I don't know if you can see me. Yeah. Go ahead, Dr. Sinclair. Um, well, uh, thank you to this um, work in tackling um, this discipline code and cleaning it up and providing some consistency that gives everyone that confidence and accuracy and all speaking common language. So I appreciate all the work and that was a committee of at least 17 people. So thank you. Um, it, it, I was just wondering if anybody, I'm not sure who the question should go to, just an example of um, how that action chart might work. So I'm thinking if a kiddo has a as part of the disruption in the cafeteria, first offense. Is I'm just trying to understand how the action chart works. Is is there an example of how that might be? Um, That's Dr. Sinclair. Um, part of the reason why we have that action matrix or that discipline matrix is we want to focus first on the lowest level of consequence to change the behavior. We want our students to be self-monitoring their own behaviors. And if they do have a consequence, we're going to try to provide an intervention at the lowest level possible to ensure that we, number one, work with the student and their family and our staff to make sure that that behavior does not return. Uh, that's one of the initial steps. Richard, would you like to try to address it maybe more from a practical standpoint as a building administrator? No, I think what you said is very appropriate. It just, it provides us a range to work with the student to provide the least consequence at the time built around interventions and trying to change the behavior and keeping the student in the game so that academically they can continue to achieve but still be able to change the behavior. Add one thing in there too. It's it's more than just it's more than just a, a an opportunity to talk about consequences and behavior, but it's also a relationship building opportunity. It's a chance for that teacher, administrator, social worker, counselor 
to begin to build a relationship, a rapport with that student and try to identify the underlying causes for the behavior so that we can address those causes so that we don't get to discipline. And that's that's really a, a big part of the, the modified, the new matrix for me is it lends itself to that, to the administrator or teacher's ability to begin to build that relationship with the student so that we can be proactive moving forward. Thank you, I appreciate that. Thank you all. I have a question, this is Laura Guy. Go ahead, Reverend Guy. Um, I know that some buildings and some classrooms are using a restorative justice or restorative discipline plan uh, with morning meetings. Does, does this matrix allow for those teachers in those buildings to continue to focus more on restoration and, as you said, keeping those relationships strong um, so that hopefully the students won't won't have the disruptions? Yes. Thank you, Dr. or Mrs. Guy. The idea behind restorative justice, we have different buildings at different places right now. So yes, it is taking place specifically in certain buildings. What we would like to see is that practice be enhanced and spread across the district. And that will be part of the work that will be done through our deep equity training, as well as uh, professional development that will be ongoing during the 2021 school year. Wonderful. And and do we have any data on um, how well that's working in those classrooms and buildings? Are we seeing a reduction in needed discipline in those areas? That's a great question. I don't have that answer right now. We'd have to reach back out to the buildings to try to pull that data and try to provide a, a more uh, concise answer for you. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Guy. Um, just, I'll just ask, Mr. Catton, do you have any questions at this juncture? No more questions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Embry, do you have any questions at this juncture? Yeah, I just, I wanted to ask, and I, first I want to start by just thanking you guys for all of this work. I think it could be lost on folks who aren't um, part of this board or paying super close attention that this is a really big leap forward for Shawnee Mission that we're even getting to a point where we have consistency in how we're coding these things and how we're offering discipline for them. And this will just give us a massive tool for moving forward so that we have some consistency and some information. We know where to pull the information from. So I want to start by just acknowledging what a big leap forward this is and thanking you guys for all that. Um, I also just am curious, that being said, you know, how these are bigger picture questions, so I apologize, but um, the role of any social workers or mental health professionals in developing this discipline matrix, because I know we have a um, desire to be sensitive to student mental health needs as well. Great question to address that. Uh, the whole process behind this evaluation and the discipline coding, uh, we had a committee that was identified. One counselor was a part of that committee, but more importantly, what we tried to do was send this out so they could include their building leadership teams, their site councils, which would include social workers, et cetera. And we then garnered feedback based on that and brought it back to the district committee. And that's why we had multiple meetings during the course of the 1920 school year so that we could take that feedback and then utilize that to change the uh, discipline statement as well as some of the uh, matrix. 
So yes, we did have uh, mental health providers as a part of that, providing this guidance and feedback. Thank you. Can I ask one other Because um, I know in the full report, um, and again, I, I recognize that we are just beginning to capture some of the data, this data, but it reflects that black students in Shawnee Mission School District are three times as likely to be suspended as their white counterparts. And I think you've done a great job here of outlining some of the specific steps we're hoping to take to see progress on that. Um, but I was just curious to understand, I know we use sort of some terms fairness and equity and equality kind of interchangeably. And I'm curious through the deep equity work we've done with Corwin, what, how we think about equity kind of as a district and how, how you guys thought about even what the word equity meant as you went into this work. Is it about, is it about process? Is it about outcomes? Is it about fairness? What does it really, what does it mean for us as a district? I, I want to try to address this and others can jump in and try to help me if I take it off. Yes, but really equity is across all of those factors. When we talk about equity, it's fairness. It's fairness and fairness may not always be the same for every student because what you're trying to do is take the student where they're at and ensure that you're trying to build a scaffold support to help them be successful. So what we are going to end up doing is we're going to try to translate it into fair treatment empowering our students to participate in the discipline process and try to ensure that our matrix is applied in an equitable manner across the board in every building in every school of the district. You answered that very well, Dr. Strike, and, and the Department of Family Services recognizes um, that that is a, a concern and something that, you know, we need to play a role in um, addressing. Um, implicit bias is a part of our lives as educators. It's part of the school district. Um, we're aware of that, and we need to provide training to every staff member to ensure that they recognize implicit bias and, and that we um, provide them with the tools and the skills they need to help each and every student. One additional piece with regard to the discipline matrix and equity, um, you know, I think it really lends itself more so to um, equitable um, uh, uh, discipline related discussions and 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 occasional discipline itself because it allows the administrator or the teacher to look at each circumstance and each student individually it's not a you know this is what you did and this is the consequence it lends itself to that discussion recognizing that every student's circumstances are unique every student is is unique and and we can bring those things into the discussion and use those that information to help develop restorative practices or discipline that will not only teach the students so that we prevent it from happening in in the future um, and not just in the district but you know moving forward um, but also again try to build that relationship find out more about what the students needs are maybe they have family needs then we can rally resources and support um, to address the, the needs of the student and perhaps his or her family as well. So the matrix really does allow us more latitude when it comes to um, having those discussions, learning more about what the student's unique circumstances and then how to best address not only the circumstances that sort of resulted in the, in the um, incident, but also to use the least amount of discipline um, in order to correct the behavior. 
So uh, we've got a lot of work to do, but um, we have some things going that are deep equity, uh, restorative justice practices uh, that I think are really going to, you're going to start to see a change in those numbers. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ms. Goodburn, do you have any questions at this juncture? Um, I don't really have any questions, but I just um, I thank the committee for the work, and it was really an extensive committee of a lot of stakeholders involved, so I appreciate that. Um, I did want to make just one um, thing I noticed was that under like the disciplinary action charts, like level one in that paragraph, it just states that the staff member who, who referred the student is to be notified of the consequences of the disciplinary action taken by the administrator. And I know I had heard uh, in the past that sometimes I think the staff members or whatever kind of felt like it went into a black hole and they never heard the outcome of different things. So can you guys speak to that? Was that something that in the in the in the committee, did some of the staff members bring that up, or was that something that was always there and maybe that just hadn't been done? But I noticed it's out, it's underlined too. So um, I just wanted you to speak to that. Another great question. Uh, yes, that was a focus going into the uh, discipline work is to ensure that we do improve communication internally with our own staff. And so one of the critical pieces, and that's one of the reasons why the discipline matrix is a part of the student handbooks through this evening, because we not only want to communicate with our students and family, we want to communicate with our uh, individual staff members so that they're aware of this process and that as we go through this 2021 school year, that will be a focus for ensuring that that uh, communication is uh, improved, if you will, so that we can communicate what happened with the student back to uh, the teacher where the issue might have taken place. Yeah, that's really important because you're right. Sometimes the student would come back to the class and if the teacher wasn't aware of what had taken place, um, then, you know, they're, they're thinking to themselves, well, what has changed? So it's that Dr. Strike nailed it. That communication piece is essential. And we need to do a better job of ensuring that what we're doing over here and what they're doing over there, that we're communicating that with one another. And I, I think I remember this from um, when I had kids in school that we had to, at the beginning of the school year, the student handbook was, it used to be delivered in, you know, in paper, but now it's electronically and that parents had to read that and sign off on it on the end, at the end. Is that still a practice that we're doing? Students and parents have to sign off on that? Yes, sure that they've had it delivered and all that that they that they have it. Yeah, that's a part of the online verification that will uh, come about. At the start of the year. One of the things that's crucial, uh, you know, and I'm not saying this would happen, but as a parent, I know uh, there's an overwhelming amount of information that's on that online verification. So when you go through, you, I would encourage the parents and students to make sure they look at the full body of what they're authorizing when they check and say, I've looked at the uh, uh, discipline code and approved that. So yes. is there any way that maybe potentially we could send out some kind of a notification to parents that it's changed and, you know, hey, you, it's, it's really important to look at it this year. I mean, is there any plans to do that? Doc, maybe that's a Dr. Fulton question. I don't know. I'll have Dr. Strike respond to it. We do, we do inform parents every year that it's there, but Dr. Strike, do you want to address that or one of the other team members? I think one of the things we uh, will work with our technology group because that's part of the Skyward uh, information system. So when they go into the online verification, we'll just make sure that we try to make a notation of that within the authorization. Okay, uh, just okay. thank you for your work. 
you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Borgman, do you have any questions? Yeah, I have a couple questions, actually. Um, I, I just want to first start off and say, you know, this is a brave conversation that we're having. Um, and this was identified, you know, as a top priority in the strategic plan that was set by our community. And so the fact that our community made this a priority for our district and we are um, tackling it head on um, just is wonderful. And so I'm grateful for the work. So thank you to everybody who thanks to the community that identified this as something that we need to address. And thank you to um, you know the, the administrators and everybody who, who played a part in this. Um, so my questions, uh, the first question I have is, I know that some schools feel, um, you know, they're they're a little bit more conservative or they are nervous about reporting discipline. And so how do we, you know, make schools feel safe, I guess, in rep reporting the discipline? And then also, how are we going to ensure that accuracy um, and consistency is being reported across all the schools? I think that I think that's a part of fostering that uh, ongoing professional conversation with our administrative team uh, through leadership and learning. I know our directors of elementary and secondary education work extensively with our building administrators. And I know uh, Richard Kramer is the director of student or of uh, activities who oversees long-term suspension hearings also tries to foster that. So I think what we have to try to do is realize that data is only as good as the information we put in. So we've got to really encourage our educators to ensure that we are getting good data. And that doesn't mean we try to hide discipline because if you if you don't know what the issues are, you can't build a school improvement plan to try to address those issues. So number one, we need to reassure them this isn't a gotcha. This is data to help you improve your school culture and your school climate to improve student outcomes for our uh, most important vendors, which are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. And then just kind of a follow up to that. Um, so what what is the process then? And this may be more of a Dr. Fulton question. Um, what's the process then for updating the strategic plan? So you know we can see you know is it a quarterly update that we can expect to see results from the different schools? Like what is the strategic plan going to look like, Dr. Fulton? Um, so we can really you know take a close eye at the data that's been captured with our with our updates. Sure. Typically at the board level, uh, you would get an annual update, but there's progress monitoring that occurs throughout the year. Uh, so, for example, just like on those discipline data, you, you, uh, you want to have those conversations pretty regularly with principals. First of all, make sure that the people are approaching data entry in the same way. It sounds easy. It's actually not. And uh, trying to get consistency across uh, even two schools is a challenge. Mm -hmm. So uh, the principals do a great job with that and the CAA staff, but that is, uh, that's something where we'll do progress monitoring throughout the year and at least annually, you'll get updates on that. Now, we did one a, a year ago. Uh, you did not get one this year, but uh, you will next year. So we'll get on track for our progress monitoring and reporting to you. 
Okay. Um, and then, you know, I know that our diversity and inclusion coordinator is a relatively new position. So how do we decide, how does the district decide, you know, where the um, diversity and inclusion coordinator um, goes? Like what, how, how is it, what's the process like in terms of which school that he is working with? Sure. Well, part of that's by uh, defined by job description. Uh, you know, the diversity inclusion coordinator plays an important role. They are uh, one team member that's working with a lot of other team members to get this work done. It can't all fall on uh, his or her back. So sure. that's something that uh, is, is a function of, they have certain functions in their job that they do, and they, and they work with other team members to do that. And I'll have, I'll have John actually add to that. Okay. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Bates is, um, you're right. He's just one person and it's a big district. And uh, we know that we've got a big job ahead of us, uh, but we also um, feel that it's imperative that in addition to the deep equity work, uh, we bring in um, a cultural, an understanding of cultural responsiveness, um, that we uh, work with our staff uh, beyond just the deep equity work on the value of those conversations with students and um, building those relationships with students. So to that end, we are working with uh, Corwin, our deep equity program, to bring 25 expert trainers um, into the fold. They will receive additional training um, that will allow them to sort of further the work that he's doing beyond just what Dr. Bates can do. Um, into the rest of the district, provide professional development, provide training, um, and develop PD. And so we're, um, we're working to sort of broaden our efforts by uh, specifically working with 25 trainers um, along with our deep equity work who will be a part of our school district in, and a part of every um, attendance area. And they'll be working with Dr. Bates and my department to expand our efforts. Dr. Bates is also available anytime. He's he's really done a phenomenal job. This is his first year. It is a new position. He's he's it, and he has done a phenomenal job this year, um, making himself available to buildings, uh, to stakeholders, to community members, to students, to teachers, to social workers, counselors. Um, he makes himself available, and uh, so when uh, areas of concern or need are identified. Uh, then we tend to sort of move him into those areas to work with that staff or that administrator or those stakeholders. Um, and that's kind of the way that we have it going right now. But the data will really help us identify those areas that need specific attention. And um, that'll help us better focus his time and energy and effort. Mm -hmm. That's great. Okay. And then my final question is, um, so what's the process then for rolling out this new way of reporting um, the discipline? Well, first, we're going to ensure that our Skyward uh, student information system has to be updated so that those codes and uh, offense codes are all updated in the system. So that's step one, is behind the scenes to get that system ready for the 2021 school year. The second piece is by uh, if the board does approve the uh, student handbooks, that's getting the information out to the building, to the parents and students as a part of that communication. And then the ongoing staff development will begin those conversations in earnest and keep that going with the administrative retreat all the way through uh, the rest of the 2021 school year. 
Okay. So will there be, like, how will then the staff, how will teachers and staff be sort of trained on this new way of reporting? As a building administrator, one of the responsibilities uh, at the start of the year is to, one, welcome your staff and also be able to share with uh, your new staff members and all staff members uh, kind of what the uh, student handbook is, how that's administered, and that will be a part of those conversations in the back to school workshops that uh, are provided before the school year starts. Okay. Dr. Strike, Dr. McKinney, and um, Richard, thank you all. I appreciate your your feedback and taking time to answer our questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone. Um, this this matrix is in uh, the student handbooks that's on the consent agenda. And then, Dr. Fulton, can you just reference what the other policy updates or the other updates in the handbook to which policies those are reflecting, just so folks know? Um, I don't have the exact policies memorized that all no, I, <laughs> I meant like, of our uh, some of our uh, diversity and inclusion language that we added this past year is now in there. Uh, you know, I'm going to kind of actually ask a couple teams that have not spoken yet, perhaps uh, Dr. Joe House or one of the other team members there. Uh, I would add just quickly. Do that. In the, we updated the food of to to charge. We updated the. Doctor Hubbard, could you start over? I'm sorry, there was some background noise. I apologize. I, I would love to hear all of your information. I think that's Sherry. Yeah. I said, Doctor. It knows, Michelle. So we um, non-discrimination policy that was changed this year was updated. Um, food service and student charging was updated um, that we did this year. Uh, transfer, student transfer policy. There was a minor change there that we updated. Obviously, the discipline matrix. And I believe that is it. Pam, Joe, or Kevin, am I missing anything? I can't think of anything else that comes to mind. We just make sure that each year when we review, we review the handbook, we're in line with what other whatever updates have been done to board policy to ensure that that's consistent. Um, so that's what we follow. But as far as any other changes that are, um, you know, impactful, it's definitely the discipline framework that's been added. That's the key piece that we discussed. Thank you. I would agree with that 100%. Well, thank you. If I could, if I could add one more thing, as the board, as the board can see, there's a lot of uh, folks that are working on these various projects, and they're all doing a wonderful job crossing multiple departments. And that's one thing I'm very impressed by is, regardless of uh, what department you're in, you're a team member, and uh, folks just do a wonderful job of working with one another, uh, regardless of their specific role, to make sure we're getting the best possible. Uh, work put forward on behalf of our students and our staff. I thank them for their work. Thank you very much. Okay, well, it looks like we're moving on to the budget workshop item 3.02. Yes, uh, Mr. Knapp is going to provide us a workshop on uh, the operating budget and what 
we'll be uh, doing for you tonight is giving you an overview of some of the things we're looking at as we prepare next year's budget. <clears throat> he will spend just a little bit of time talking about the, the fiscal reality for next year, such as we know it, and there's a, there's a range of possibilities, and Dr. Little actually referred to a little bit of that tonight. So we'll we'll give you a feel for the lay of the land and uh, some details that go with it as well. So it's all yours, Mr. Knapp. Yeah, thank you. Yes, to, uh, tonight is the second of two budget workshops. So uh, we're gonna talk about operating funds and federal dollars tonight. Back on May 11th, we had our first workshop and that was not operating funds, mainly capital outlay. And you can find that on our district website. Next slide. And as always, the budget provides the financial resources to carry out the district's strategic plan. Next step, our next slide. And those three objectives are personalized learning plan, career ready, and interpersonal skills. Next slide. And before we get into the operating funds, this slide kind of reflects back on how we spent $346 million in 2018-19. The different areas there are what we refer to as our functional areas, and they follow the KSD chart of accounts. And you can see where we spend 70%, that's that green area, on direct support for student and teachers, another 25% on facilities, and 4% towards general and central administration. Next slide. So tonight we're gonna to be talking about operational funds. So you can see that that's the daily expenditures associated with running the school on a daily basis. So that's your salary and benefits, student transportation, utilities, and the supplies and services to run departments and school buildings. Next slide. Um, you're probably familiar with this slide. Um, we, we've shown this in the past. Uh, the district has 36 separate funds uh, each one of those funds has its authority given to it by state statute. Uh, we like to group them into these five different groupings. And tonight we're going to again talk about the operating funds and the uh, federal dollars. Next slide. Um, this slide is just a pie chart of the same data that you just saw. It just gives you a little better visual of the dollar amounts and how what piece of the pie each of our different groups make up our total budget. Next slide. So tonight we're gonna to talk about operating funds or also I like to call them supported funds. And the reason we call them supported funds is because by state law, all our general state aid and special education state aid is deposited into the general fund. Our local taxes are deposited into the supplemental general fund. And from there we have to transfer or support the other funds, and those other funds are your at-risk funds, your bilingual fund, CTE, which used to be called the vocational funds, and your special education funds. So from your general fund to your, or from your general fund and your supplemental general, you make transfers to these funds to support the expenditures that are coded to those separate funds by state law. The main revenue sources for our operating funds are state aid, which makes up about 30, or I'm sorry, 73%. Our local taxes about 25%, and that's all LOB. And then about another 2.3% of reimbursable 
and miscellaneous revenues. Next slide. So now we're gonna get into the assumptions that we are making at this point to build our 2021 budget. Um, you know, the budget is built on what we know as of now, and that is the statutory funding amounts. So the base is at $4,569. That's a $133 increase. Um, we know that the state has passed their budget for 2021, which included funding for the high density at risk. So that was in jeopardy last year, and that's about a million dollars for us. So that's in our budget as well. Um, so these are all assumptions that we know of now. Um, it's definitely the future looks a lot of uncertainties. You heard Dr. Little speak earlier that um, in his opinion, we might not hear anything from the state about revenue reductions for 2021 until after November when the revenue consensus comes out. Um, if they follow history, that's exactly what they did during the Great Recession. They didn't make allotments until after those numbers came out in November, and then they dealt with the, the future year budget in the, the spring legislative session. So we're really at a time of a lot of unknowns, but then what we do know is what's in the state budget and what is in statutory law. Um, so, the, so when we work through these budgets, the assumptions that I'm making um, are based on that premise. And then I also, I wanted to add that little, so if, so for the record, so it's out there. So any $1 change in our base amount, assuming it would go down, it's not gonna go up, would be a loss of revenue of $35,000 to our operating funds. So $1 would equal $35,000. Um, so then, Making up our operating funds, our weighted FTE, we anticipate a decrease of 232.7 FTE. FTE is full-time equivalent. So that represents how many minutes a kiddo is in school. So if they're there full-time, 360 minutes a day, that's 1.0. If it's less than 360 minutes, then they round it to the nearest tenth. So it'd be like 0.9. 0.8, et cetera. So we know our FTE enrollment is going down 75.1 because that's based on previous year's uh, audited enrollment. So that's locked in. We're gonna lose 75 kiddos in 2021 budget. At all the other weightings are based on September 20, 2020. So that coming up, September 20 is our official headcount enrollment. So our weightings will be based on that date. Uh, so our at risk, we're projecting a 2% decrease in our free lunch. So that would reduce our FTE 69.1. We reduce it 2% because it's been trending down for three years in a row. Now, that being said, um, you know, you, you kind of make the assumption that the free lunch goes down because the economy is good. Well, we'll be waiting and see what the economy does uh, this fall and how it affects that or impacts that number on September 20, if that free lunch count will go up. Um, but right now, built on this budget is 69.1 FTE decrease. New facilities, that was the weighting that was eliminated a couple years ago, but you were grandfathered in until your new facilities ran out, and this will be the last year for new facilities. So we're in the second year claiming of the Brookwood Elementary School um, and then after 2021, we no longer will have new facilities. 
special education reimbursement rate. Uh, right now, we're building on the assumption that it's 29,800. So that's what we built the budget on for 1920, our current year. And that's the one I mentioned earlier that we don't know what that amount is yet. There's still the state is still doing that process, and we'll know in maybe two weeks what that reimbursement rate will be. And they'll also probably give us a hint on what it will be for 2021. But right now, all I know is that it's at 29,800, and that's what it's built on. We're going to see some special ed um, funding increases because we added 8.1 uh, special ed FTE. So we're talking about full-time equivalent personnel at this time. So this is not student headcount. This is personnel. So this would be teachers and paraprofessionals. So we added six teachers and um, and we added six paras. And so the para is reimbursed at 40%. So when you do the math on that, you get 8.1 FTE that we added to the budget. And then our SPED transportation is reimbursed at 80%. And we anticipate our transportation costs going up 3%. The LOB base, um, as you recall, is based on a different base. We like to call it the fake base. Um, it is based on the consumer price index. Right now, we built, we're building in a 1% consumer price index increase. So the LOV base will be $4,604. Um, that 1% will be set by the state when they send out that budget document um, at the end of June. And then we have some other decrease in other revenues. I've adjusted the interest to go down since the T-bill rate, the treasury rate is now at zero. Um, that won't um, that most certainly will impact our interest that we receive. Uh, facility rentals, we're going to show them being down since we're not doing any facility rentals in July and August. And then the elimination of the Little Horizons daycare program will lose that uh, daycare revenue as well. Next slide. So again, building those assumptions on what we know now, we anticipate our total operating revenue going to be $250.4 million. That's about a $4.2 million increase over what we're projecting that we will have in 1920. Next slide. And this is the same information just shown to you as a pie chart. So you can see the different um, slices of pie that make up our funding sources for our operating funds. Next slide. So now I'm going to switch to our expenditures for our operating funds. Again, this is based on what we know now. Um, we, we have professional growth uh, at $600,000. That's an increase of about $100,000. Uh, the last two years, we were at $572,000. And then last year, it was seven hundred. dollars I mean, this current year that we're in, 1819, $739,000. So... We increased that to $600,000. And the professional growth is the same thing as what we call column movement when a teacher moves horizontally across the teacher's schedule when they get additional uh, college credit hours. We have a million dollars increase in our um, health insurance line. And that's made, that's made up of two things. So we did a, um, the health premium went up and we increased that cap to 694 back in. Um, January 1st of 2020. And um, your health insurance runs on a calendar year. 
which is obviously January to December. Our fiscal year runs on July to to June. Um, so when you do an increase in our health cap, you some of that the increase costs about eight months for a teacher, for example, eight months of that goes in the current year, 1920, and four months, September through December, goes into the next future year. So about $600,000 of that is that um, a reoccurring cost from what we approved uh, back in January, uh, January 1st of 2020. And then about $400,000 of that is our vacancies. We have about 50 vacancies and at that particular time, uh, particular time when we set out budget, we always budget out for all the vacancies because um, you don't know whether they're going to take health insurance or not, and you want to make sure that's in the budget. So that's what makes up that million dollars in health insurance. Our early retirement payment was, a, remember that? That was about five years ago. We made the last of our payments for the early retirement plan in 1920. So $1.7 million drops out of the budget. For 2021, 3% contractual increase in transportation for about 422000 Supplies and services, about $450,000 increase. And supplies and services are all the uh, the department and school buildings budgets to run their department. So professional development, O&M supplies, um, curriculum instruction, uh, supplies and services. So we're talking um, consultants, travel, PD, et cetera. So most of that is in your uh, special ed, out-district placement, and your curriculum and instruction. And then personnel changes um, netted out to only adding 47000 in the budget at this time. Uh, so those assumptions total up to about $790,000 in increases. Next slide. Um, so a little bit more detail on the personnel changes. Uh, through just the regular staffing uh, process that our HR department does, we added one FTE. This is based on projected enrollment for next year. Like we said in the special education staff, we added six special education teachers and six paraprofessionals. Um, we're going to eliminate three um, administrative positions that retired June 30th. We're going to restore the early the principal at early childhood center. Uh, so that's an added position and then backfill the coordinator position there. Uh, and then a Little Horizons daycare program, as I mentioned earlier, was eliminated, and that saves 10.75 positions or $358,000. When you add all that up, um, you're at, uh, you net out to about $47,000 in new personnel costs. So kind of worked out well. Um, you're, ab you're able to add six, um, well, seven teachers and six pairs in the special ed program and still net it out to only about a $47,000 cost. Next slide. So based on those assumptions, um, our anticipated budget for 2021 right now is 243.7 million. That's about a $308,000 increase on what we're projecting that we're gonna spend in 1920. Next slide. And again, this is just a, this is a, a pie chart breaking down our major classifications of how we spend our budget. You've seen this before. Uh, again, we're uh, labor intensive, 83.8% of our budget and salary, I'm sorry, 83% of our budget goes to salary and benefits or about $204 million. And you can see the breakdown um, on that pie chart. 
Uh, next slide, please. Um, okay, this, we'll spend a little time here on this slide. This is this kind of got a little more busier than it typically does, but you've seen this before, and it it, it kind of gathers all the data and puts it into one uh, chart. And so I'm going to draw your attention to the the blue line that's called surplus deficit. Um, so I just want to explain that real quick. So that is that is simply just subtracting expenditures from the revenue amount. So if revenues amount is greater than the expenditures, we call that a surplus and vice versa. If expenditures are more than revenues, we call that a deficit. If you deficit spend, um, then you're taking that out of your fund balances. So you can see where we deficit spent in 17, 18, 18, 19. Fund balance went from 15.5 million. The beginning fund balance went from 15.5 million to an ending fund balance in 18, 19 of 13.1 million. Um, so that brings us to 1920. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we're starting to see, materialize the savings from the effect of the COVID um, pandemic that we are in. Uh, right now, I'm projecting $2.8 million. Um, a lot of our, our expenditures have um, solidified for the year. The revenues... Um, are coming in, uh, so there's, I'm making the assumption that the, you know the the state the final state aid payment will come in through June. The special education state aid payment will come in in June as well. Um, the, um, so the all indication says that they will. So we're looking at about 246.2 million dollars in revenue, 243.4 million in expenditures. So surplusing about 2.8 million dollars. And you can see what that does to that ending fund balance. It brings it up a much better position than what we've been in the past two or three years. It brings it up to a $15.9 million projected ending fund balance or 8.9%. You know, as we recently been talking, we would like to have one month's worth of expenditures in our ending fund balance or 8.3%. So that's slightly above that 8.3%. Um, and again, if, if you see the asterisk, the ending fund balance is the ending fund balance plus that contingency reserve amount that you see at the very bottom of 5.6 million. Um, so it, it, if there's anything positive that came out of it, it did put our ending fund balances in a better position going into a budget year 2021 that has a lot of uncertainties. But it that, that's another good reason why you have fund balances. That's why we stress that. That's a good business practice that keeps you financially healthy, um, et cetera. Um, so we're living it out uh, right now. Um, so I'm going to take you to um, 2021, the last two columns. We we talked about, kicked this idea around, and we wanted to um, just answer a what-if question. We were listening to KASB and Mark Tallman, which there's a link down at the bottom of the slide, talking about the question came up, well, what would happen if the state um, passed on the deficit to all departments in the state of Kansas? So K through 12, KSDE would have to take their share of the hit. That would be a $400 million um, reduction in K through 12 state aid pushed out to the school districts. And what would that mean in the base amount? So 
uh, Mark did a calculation and said that would be $3,986. So it, you see on the left, the base amount by statute is $4,569. That's what the assumptions that I presented tonight is based on. Um, a loss scenario uh, based on a $400 million reduction would take it down to three thousand nine hundred eighty six dollars so it's a it's a very wide range i don't anticipate it by any means being three thousand nine hundred eighty six i think the governor will do everything in her power to keep that amount at four thousand five hundred and sixty nine um but you can just see the the drastic difference um for 2021 based on four thousand five hundred sixty nine right now our budget looks at $6,731,000 surplus. And that's prior to anything that um, is decided about any type of salary or health compensation packages. Then when you look at the loss scenario, it swings, it's a $20 million swing actually to a $13 million deficit that would take your, take your ending fund balances to $2.9 million. Um, so I'll pause there in case we do want to ask, talk anything, anybody else want to say anything about this? Or keep moving. Um, are there any board members who have questions at this time, or do you want to hold your questions for the presentation? I can't see you, um, so I'm going to ask you to speak up because my screen has the presentation on it. Okay, well, hearing none, we'll kick it back to you. Okay, let's go to the next slide, Drew. Okay, this is a slide that we presented uh, last year at our May workshop as well. Um, the first section along the top are the cost factors for salary and health increases, the impact it would have on the budget. Um, the numbers presented here are for all pay groups, and pay groups meaning teachers, administrators, um, parents as teachers, classified. Um, so for a step, um, that's what we refer to when uh, you move down on the salary schedule. So you're moving vertically down, um, kind of represents a year of experience. Um, so for all pay groups, that would be $2.3 million. And that, that includes the Social Security and the unemployment that we have to pay on all our wages. Um, then any increase in the base um, for all pay groups. So for each pay group, if we were to increase the base amount, 1%, that would be $1.75 million. So if we were to do a 2% base increase, you would just double that number. Um, so that would be about a three and a half. Then health insurance for each 1% change or increase in our health premium, that would require a $7 increase in the district contribution, and that would be $160,000. So if you were to approve any type of compensation package, you would have to consider all three of these amounts. So if you agree to do a step, you're looking at 2.3 million. If you agree to do something on the base, you're looking at that dollar amount. If we increase, if we agree to increase any of the health insurance district contribution towards health insurance, you're looking at $160,000 per 1% increase. So those are just cost factors to help you um, show you the costs 
of of um, how much compensation puts on the the budget, and these are all reoccurring costs. So when you add them, they'll be in year after year after year. Um, then the next section is items for future budget consideration. A lot of these items were um, presented last year and still under discussion through our strategic plan. Um, you can see the uh, high school and middle school moving six period to five periods. Um, elementary counselors, uh, the, the uh, social workers, and a few other items there. So these were all items or needs that were been discussed last year by our community and by our um, our cabinet through our budget development process. Um, so you can see it's, it's staggering. It's 170 FTE and about $12.5 million. So quite a, more needs than what we have for financial resources. And I'll add, I'll add to that, Mr. Knapp, one of the things that we will do at our next board meeting is we'll begin to talk in more detail about prioritizing these things. Because as you mentioned, obviously, uh, there's, with $12 million of, uh, of uh, you know, legitimate out, uh, needs that we have, we're going to have to prioritize these. So we'll talk more about that at the next meeting in detail. Okay, next slide. Um, we put this slide in because uh, the question was asked at May 11th uh, budget workshop about um, the allocation of salaries to the capital outlay fund. And so I just wanted to present to you three different scenarios of what that would look like. Um, our tax revenues that we're estimating for 2021 in the capital outlay fund is 35.7 million. So that's the eight mills the eight mil levy that generates capital outlay tax revenue of 35.7. So if we were to take um, what we're currently doing in that first column, we allocate $4.5 million in salary and benefits to the capital outlay now. That's close to about 80 positions. A lot of our electricians and HVACs, painters, et cetera, have been coded the capital outlay for many years. Um, that represents about 12.7% of the tax revenue number up there. If we were to um, increase it to a, what, 25%, so a scenario where we would look at doing 25% of the 35.7 million in tax revenue, that would give us the availability of $8.9 million. Um, with 4.5 million already allocated capital outlay, that would leave 4.3, 4.4 million left in additional salary and benefits um, available. Um, and I guess I should back up a little bit. And the reason why I was asked is because we have $9.3 million in custodial salary and benefits that are being paid out of operating funds. And two or three years ago, KSDE expanded those guidelines to allow us to charge the custodial salaries to the capital outlay fund. Um, we currently still have those all in our operating funds, except for two. We have two positions in the capital outlay fund that are out at our aquatic center. So back to the, the third scenario, um, it would require close to 39% of our revenue to absorb $9.3 million of custodial salaries into the capital outlay fund. And so the question was brought up, the uh, 
how much do we have out there? How much can we do in capital outlay and the impact and um, the impact on capital outlay? If you're, you know, if you're going to take over 39% of your, your consistent revenue from year to year, you really are just taking away uh, vital resources from doing your infrastructure. When you have 60 buildings, um, O&M, you know, they spend about 10, 10, 13 million dollars a year on infrastructure needs. Our current bond referendum has expired. We no longer have any bond money to spend. So it puts a lot of pressure on our capital outlay funds to maintain the daily uh, infrastructure needs uh, of our facilities. Next slide. Could I ask a and quick question? Is that okay? Just to check my understanding yes. here. Okay. So um, back to that um, table, Mr. Knapp. The, so the three scenarios, I don't know if you can go back one slide or not. Um, the three, thank you. The first scenario that 12.7% reflects kind of current practice right now. And then the next scenario would be if we were to define some set percentage, some maximum percentage or something like that, the um, cap or some, uh, a capital outlay, that would be the dollar amount associated. And then scenario, the last scenario would be if we were to cover 100% of our, you know, all of our eligible salary and benefit, it would, it reflects right now at least about 39% of our capital outlay. So is that, so the last, so that last scenario, that 38.8% really is, that's what the total cost today would reflect, that kind of percentage, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. It's a helpful table. Thank you. I might, I might add too, this, this is another topic we're going to spend some more time at at our next board meeting as we think about that relationship between uh, our, our bonding capacity and the needs, over $600 million of needs that we've identified in our facilities, uh, at the relationship between bonds, capital, and operating. So that'll, that'll be a good conversation at the next meeting. Um, can I can I just ask for clarification in the um, capital outlay budget presentation that we received at the last meeting? Um, the ending balance in the capital outlay fund was five million dollars. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, thank you. I, I, I won't interrupt you again. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> All right, next slide. Drew, can you move to the next slide? I'm showing slide 19, Russell. I think there may be a lag on your end. I'm showing the slide that says federal funds. Yeah, I don't see that. Okay, there we go. I see it now. Thank you. Okay, so these are our federal funds that uh, we have received uh, preliminary allocations from the state for 2021. Um, Title I uh, for low income. Uh, as you recall, we lost about a million dollars over a three-year period um, in federal grant allocation. There is that it's actually an increase of $9,000 um, for 2021. 
Um, one of the other impacts that COVID has had on Title I, um, like I mentioned earlier, that May and June um, is used for a lot of professional development, uh, some travel to workshops, seminars, et cetera, that uh, couldn't take place. So that money stays in the Title I fund and it is carryover fund. Um, you can carry over 15% of your grant allocations in your Title I to your new year. So um, Title I will look a little more healthier going into uh, 2021. Migrant is going to stay flat. Teacher quality was um, uh, flat. In fact, all of these were uh, fairly close to what they were in 1920. Um, so I'll jump down to uh, the CARES Act, the E-S-S-E-R CARES Act. Um, so that you were awarded $2.6 million for that. And that just became available um, this month in May. We have until um, September 30 of 2021 to spend it. Um, the guideline, there's about 14 different guidelines, but they're all related to COVID uh, preparedness, readiness, uh, et cetera, that goes with that. Um, and um, we, um, I would say that the, the cabinet or um, Dr. Fulton and his team are working on a plan on how to uh, spend that money. Um, and then I want to just refresh your memory on our military history. Uh, the funds that we talked about on our May 11th workshop has an impact on that. Um, but our general and LOB um, are part of our operating funds. And so they're included in this um, this slide as well. So we anticipate our mill levy decreasing uh, 0.24%, very small amount, and, and it'd be about 51.995. And again, our mill levies aren't set until um, November. Um, and then we get our assessed valuation in June uh, to build our budget on. Next slide. Are you guys seeing the next slide? Yes. Yeah, the budget timeline is up. Okay, I don't see it, so I'll just I'll just wing it here. So the budget timeline is uh, May 11th. We did our non-operating fund workshop. May 20 funds. Uh, we'll present uh, a budget to the um, board of education at perhaps uh, a tentative uh, board of education date of July 20th. This is where you approve the publication that goes in the newspaper. Um, it sets the budget amounts or your authority. Uh, you see that, but you can go lower than that. Um, and then on August, it goes, it has to be published for 10 days, and then we'll come back um, on August 10th and do a budget hearing. That's where the public can come and speak to the budget, and then it'll be an action item on your agenda uh, for adoption. And then we have to submit it to the county and the state on August 25th. And that is my last slide. So we'll stand for questions. Thank you. Okay, well, I'll run down our list of folks here. Um, Guy, do you have any questions? Oh, sorry. Um, no, I don't think I have any questions at this time. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mr. Stratton, do you have any questions? I do. 
Um, and I'm going to ask them and speak to them personally, as well as on behalf of what we're going to be discussing as we finish the answer committee tomorrow. Uh, we're going to have a, an abbreviated version of the same presentation and conversation and begin to continue to develop questions that the community might also want to have answered uh, so that we can best communicate through each of these steps all the way through August of the eventual uh, consideration of the budget. Um, as you can tell by my questions of Dr. Little today, and as the ones I continue to raise, I guess I'm one of those that's really concerned about the revenue. And I want to walk through what I think are the basic numbers, and then we can talk about the ranges that we put together. So as I understood the last Kansas estimates, the estimate was at the end of this year, which basically is the end of next month in June, the Kansas legislature and the Kansas state budget looks to have about a $200 million surplus was the, the estimate. However, there was a projection that going through, through next year, so through the 2021 year, 20-21 year, there would be a $600, $600 million reduction in revenue versus what was projected. And so I wanted to say that out loud to say, so while there is a projected balance this year at the end of for the legislature of 200 million, it looks like they'll have a deficit of 400 million at the end of next uh, year. And that's where the $400 million deficit came, came up in, in, in Russ's presentation. So I'm adding this to say, I think it's healthy for us as a board to speak in terms of ranges and saying KSDE is presenting one number and I would call it, it's the the Montoya agreed to formula to fund public education. And then there's the realities that our legislators and governor are gonna to have to face. And that is, if there aren't the federal funds to stop gap this or some other sources of funds, the legislature will have to make up to $400 million in projected cuts. But the piece that I wanna keep reiterating also is, even if the federal government comes in and provides funding, it's a one-time event. And I think that's the part that's going to make budgeting so difficult too. So even if there's an injection of money into from the federal government that allows the governor and the legislature to have the latitude to allocate those funds accordingly, I'm still concerned about our ability to, to, to look at revenue projections that go like this in an economy that's really going to be reeling as we come out of this COVID uh, situation. So I'm sharing that to say both my observation riddled with opinion, and that is that uh, I'm going to be very cautious as we move through this as one of the seven board members, because I'm very concerned about the realities of this revenue coming in at 3% increase over last year. I, I just, I just don't see it. Um, I'll pause there, even though there's not really a question there. Mr. Knapp, you, you referenced the fact that, uh, you know, we saw this before, I guess, what would someone like our district do between now and November until we get these new numbers Don't we have any other way of, addressing the reality of where revenue really might be at that point? Or do we just have to wait till November? Yeah, you would just have to wait till November. They're, you, they're going to, um, we'll go through that budget process. Well, they'll, the state will send out, KSDE will send out their budget documents in June and they'll be, um, they'll include all the assumptions to build our budget on. So this would be all school districts to build their budget based on a base amount of this. Uh, the LOB CPI will be based on that. Special education reimbursement rate will be based on that dollar amount. And they'll provide that all to us in June and July that will we come and present to you uh, for board approval. 
Um, but then like kind of Dr. Little said, and, and to your point, we'll wait until they take some type of action at the state level before we know what our revenues are gonna be like. All right, thank you. I, it's gonna be an interesting several months to navigate. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. I don't know if interesting is the word I would have used, but we'll take it. Um, Ms. Embry, do you have any questions for us at this time? Yeah, just um, I, I want to confirm what I think I'm hearing based on Dr. Uh, Mr. Stratton's questions, which is we will not have information, clear enough information about our expected funding from the state until late December. But we do have to develop and provide a budget to the state by the end, by August 25th, based on statute, correct? Yes, <laughs> that is correct. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's correct. Okay. Thank you. And the, the, the budget that we approve, we can spend less than that if we receive less from the state, but not more. So what is from a process, like what is, what, what could that look like if we have to spend less than what we have budgeted? Is that, I mean, not in terms of where does the money come from, but what does that look like? Do departments redevelop their budgets? Does the board decide? Is this, like, who, what does that decision-making process look like? Well, the, the superintendent will make a recommendation to the board and the board will act on that recommendation. Typically is what happens. And we will put the budget together in a way that we feel is uh, reflective of what we know and, and uh, adjust for what we don't get. And that's part of why we're just taking a cautious approach right now. Let's see what kind of data might come before we have to make those final decisions. And, budget put together. When I reviewed all this budget information as a new board member, it was like my head was going to explode if I looked at that final column of the revenue projections from the state. So if I hadn't seen that, there were a lot of good pieces of information included here. Absent changes at the state level, we'll be getting an increase of $333 to our base, which equates to an additional $4.6 million for the district. And I read the slide six as demonstrating that we would have um, $6.7 million that's not currently budgeted. And there's, I don't think, an intention to just necessarily put all $6.7 million of that into our surplus. So um, absent this uncertainty from the state, we could be looking, could have been looking at a fairly good budgetary picture from what I saw. Anyone want to is that, is that what am I interpreting it all correctly? Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, I'm really having a hard time here right now. It's very choppy, but I thought you what I thought I heard was that there's a there's a lot of positive in um, the budget um, if everything gets funded fully, and I would agree with that. Six point seven million dollar surplus is um, is a nice position to be in. Mm -hmm. A benefit of me as a new board member, Russ, and I, I know you shared with, this with me briefly, but I think it's helpful for the community to hear. Can you talk briefly about the process that happens internally to the district to develop the budget that you've shared with us today and that we'll continue talking about over the next couple of months, the role the various departments and cabinet members play in crafting this budget? Yeah, our, our budget development process starts back in um, October where we, um, the budget department will send out um, budget requests to our different departments. 
Um, and that's where they do, they request what they need for 2021, um, what services um, um, to run their departments. Um, so this is our O&M department, our ICT, our curriculum instructions. Um, and then that those budgets are submitted up through the supervisor and up to cabinet for approval. And once it's approved at the cabinet level, it, it then is um, given down to the budget department and, and we start a draft of, of our future year um, budget scenario. Um, a lot of our budget line items are done centrally. So as, you, as I mentioned, we're about 84% of salary and benefits. So we do all that. Uh, our budget department does that. Allison Starosky does a very good job of doing that. Um, so all our uh, salary and benefits we do centrally, we do our uh, student transportation with Dr. Ziegler and DS bus. We work out transportation there. We estimate our utilities with Bob Robinson. Uh, so all that is done um, um, in the central office. And then it's, it's very fluid and we, we update those uh, each month as they go by, as we can see historically what we're doing for transportation and utilities, et cetera. And then we finally put together uh, a full budget based on what funding we have and we present that to cabinet uh, and then eventually to the, the Board of Education at these two workshops. I might add, I might add too, that process is very similar to what you'll find in uh, those districts. It's a pretty typical process for developing school budgets. Of course, a lot of it's tied up into ongoing uh, normal expenses that you incur. So, you know, as you saw in uh, the budget presentation tonight, uh, where we can find cost savings to prioritize those items in our strategic plan, then that's then we then we do that. We have been doing that. But that's part of the budget process as well as thinking about where are we spending the money and is it in the area that really supports our strategic planning work? Okay, thank you. Um, Ms. Embry, are you, are you done with your questions? Can I move on? That's for me. Great. Thank you. Um, Ms. Boardman, do you have any questions for us at this time? I don't have any additional questions. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Goodburn, do you have any questions at this time? No, I don't. Thank you. Dr. Sinclair, do you have any questions at this time? Sorry, I'm muting there. Um, I have uh, one other question, um, and I appreciate all the um, reference to a lot of these budget assumptions, kind of our pre-COVID budget assumptions and trying to figure out um, where we're going to be in terms of um, uh, allocations to kind of the Montoy commitment versus the realities of impact of the kind of range, the other end of the range that KASB identified if indeed come the January, the, the legislators um, year that comes right in the middle of our school year, you know, if those revenues change kind of dramatically, it's helpful to have that range. I appreciate that. The, the question I was trying to um, think about in the federal funding, um, there's federal dollars for COVID that are specifically allocated um, 
should be allocated towards COVID-related needs that the district faces. And so, again, that's one of those tasks that all the superintendents across the state are um, in the middle of processing. Are those federal dollars reflected in the anticipated budget um, expenditures? Or uh, I think it was maybe slide nine, is it slide nine? Or uh, looking at anticipated funding, or is the, um, are those dollars uh, separate? Because I was just trying to trying to anticipate some of the expenses. If you think about supplies, that I'm just this is one example. Mm -hmm. I'm sure of a million complexities, but if we think about potential expenditures and looking at including supplies and services, those are kind of the standard supplies and services. But I would assume that if we're going to have kids and staff in the classroom, there's going to be need for hand sanitizers and you know just kind of the cleaning and and PPE kinds of things that are expenses beyond what would be typical. Mm -hmm. um, is that so is yeah, the, separate? The, they are separate, Mary. Um, Thank you. Yeah, they would not be included in the operating fund. So they're, they, they follow the, they're not Title I dollars, but they follow that method of determining how much districts get. And we have to keep those separate in as a federal um, silo, so to speak, and spend it just on COVID-related uh, expenditures. Okay. And can I ask one other kind of clarifying question? In thinking about how the budget is developed, I kind of think about that in two ways. There's the financial piece of it, of putting it together, and um, of the however many different funds, 32 different funds, like all those financial components. And then there's that integration to the teaching and learning and priorities of the strategic plan. And how does that, you know, how do you fit the, the goals of the strategic plan in with the process of, of building the budget? And so um, that seems to be kind of, and, and Dr. Fulton, maybe you alluded to that, you know, a question that we'll continue to um, talk about, but that, that's a different answer, I think, than the kind of the process we're going through now of anyways. But I would, you know, I would expect that is a sorry, I'm not able to articulate myself here, but the they seem to be slightly two different questions, two different. I'm not sure. Um, uh, um, um, uh, where our conversation is tonight at um, thinking about the, the just the whole process of building the budget. So I'm sorry, I'm starting to ramble, so I'll just stop there. Okay. Can I um, just add briefly, Mary, because I think I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Conversation briefly with Russ earlier, and I think mm -hmm. the purpose of these first two budget workshops which was really helpful for me to understand is to just get our arms around our financial standing as a district and not mm -hmm. necessarily to be making some of these strategic decisions and having about kind of what do we prioritize or deprioritize moving forward that's part of like more ongoing process over the next month and that was not clear to me earlier and um it's really helpful i think that's kind of what you're getting to so thank you you said that much more succinctly i appreciate that saving me there yeah. yep um so i have a 
question Russ, um, the consumer revenue estimates, the CREs that came out a few weeks ago, I think I asked Dr. Little um, if that factored in any other um, potential changes with regards to the COVID situation. I know we, you know, we're kind of opening back up right now, but there's a possibility that we could close back down. Um, and if I recall correctly, many years ago when the CREs were coming out after the 2012 implementation of the um, tax experiment, CREs were off in that it was worse than what had been predicted. So if I am recalling this correctly, I guess I'm looking to see if I am. Is it possible that the CREs could be off and it could be worse? Or are we comfortable with saying that the CREs are probably um, closely calculating what the revenue will actually be? Like if we're dealing with a range, is this the range? Or is it possible that it's going to be a broader range than this? And it's fair if you don't know that, I guess I have to say that loud because I have anxiety. <laughs> Russ, could you hear that okay? Um, I'm struggling, it's very choppy, but I, I think uh, you were questioning if, do we really rely on the, cons uh, the consensus revenue and how accurate they are? Um, I, you know, you could really assume worse. Um, um they you know they, they 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 did those back in april there's a lot that's taken place since then so it could be worse it could be spot on it could be better um we're just really speculative at this at this time okay thank you oh does anybody have any follow-ups or furthers all right, hearing none, thank you so much, Mr. Knapp, for your presentation tonight. It was really comprehensive and a lot of information, even if some of it is um, kind of difficult to wrap ourselves around at this time. Um, thank you. Okay, so that will move us to our consent items. Um, item 4.1, approval of the consent items. I'll seek a motion to approve. Number two. Um, moved by Ms. Goodburn. Is there a second? I'll second. Goodburn. Um, I heard Ms. Goodburn second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. We will move on to the action items. Our first action item is 5.1, the defeasance of the bond, and I will turn that over to Dr. Fulton. Yes, and I'm going to have... Uh... Mr. Knapp, give a brief overview of uh, of what this item is about. Mr. Knapp, are you able to hear me okay? He's had enough of us. Uh, <laughs> you, know what, you know what we might do is, as he's kind of getting logged in, why don't we go to 5.02 and then come back to 5.01 if that's okay? That's, that is fine. Um, so moving on to 5.2, adoption of the district-wide learning management system canvas. Dr. Fulton, I know you're going to be speaking to that. Well, actually, Dr. Hubbard and her team are, they've worked really hard on this project. They've, they've listened carefully to what we want, and so they're going to give us an overview of the process of the recommendation. So Dr. Hubbard, it's all yours. 
So I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to present the approval of the district-wide pre-K-12 learning management system for the district. So while we've discussed a district LMS for many, many years, the onset of the continuous learning process in March confirmed the need for a district-wide LMS to support both teaching and learning for staff and students. Additionally, we recognize the value of an LMS would have for all of our stakeholders, including parents, to have a common platform, especially if they have multiple kids in multiple buildings. So in April, we started this process system. We had a, uh, a committee, I think we had about 30 some, and it was comprised of teachers, administrators, students, and parents. So at the recognized Krista Carson, Lindsay Stevenson, both of which are instructional coaches for the district, and Dan Grumman. Um, who spent hours organizing preparing for this process. Additionally, a special thank you um, to the members that presented, even though they're not all with us tonight, sitting on presentations, completing rubrics. So we are thankful for the work of that team. And with that said, I'm going to turn it over to Kristen Lindsay as to from this point. Thank you, Dr. Hubbard. I, um, as you, Dr. Hubbard mentioned, we uh, definitely, this stems from the feedback and the experiences that we had in our remote continuous learning. And if you will recall, there was a thought exchange that was initiated to get that feedback. And that, that was initiated right in the middle of us being in continuous learning. So um, it, the question was posed, what can the district do to support students' well-being? And there were about 2,000 participants in this thought exchange. And as the thoughts started coming in, no, Russ, a few yeah, recurring Yeah, I can take ideas. it if you're, if you're can't get back on. David Adebeer, you, you're back on? Dr. Atha, can you mute? Okay. Uh, All right, sorry. Thank you. Please continue, thank you. Yeah, no worries. Um, so, a few recurring ideas and themes started to develop with our thought exchange. One of those ideas was was um, that idea that there needed to be this central location for communication for parents and students, and this central location needed to house consistent and communicate um, consistent communication, but also it needed to be a place for students to organize their digital workflow and at the same time for parents to be able to access those. Um, so the results also okay. highlighted the need for the integration of the tools and the programs that teachers were already using and with those tools to be accessible again in one place for the students and parents. So with that thought exchange, it became clear that a potential solution might be that learning management system or an LMS. And so on the next, slide and actually it's going to be the next slide sorry about that <laughs> um lindsay's going to share exactly what an lms is thank you um actually drew do you mind jumping down to slide four and then we'll go back to slide three thank you um, an lms and learning management system is something that a lot right now a lot of teachers are kind of finding their own mechanisms and their own programs to use to meet that need to streamline the learning and Google Classroom is one that many of the teachers are currently using, but that has a lot more, it's a lot more work on the teacher side and it doesn't sync with this, the Skyward system. So the, all of the student information is not synced with it and they have to enter a lot of that on their own. 
So a full LMS would sync all that student information and it will also sync with the grade book. So everything that's happening in the one learning management system will also reflect in Skyward automatically with a regular syncing. Um, however, we decide to set that up as a district. It will house all the student data so that all of the achievement data for students will be easily accessible and then teachers can see all of that in one place and make decisions moving forward for education um, and curriculum choices. It will auto populate their courses and it will have all of the student and family information also populated automatically upon the beginning of the school year so that they have everything in one place for easy communication. And ultimately, it will make teachers' jobs a lot more effective and efficient, and it will help our families to feel more included and organized with the educational process. So when we looked at what teachers needed in an LMS, we decided to ask them with the next thought exchange. And Chris is going to talk about slide three on what the teachers said they needed with a learning management system. So, so once that thought exchange was initiated for our staff, there were about 800 participants who provided some thoughts and some ideas. And again, some recurring themes and ideas came out from those considerations about what we should consider when looking at an LMS. Some of the themes that came out from the staff, number one, it needed to be user-friendly and accessible to all staff, parents, and students. Another theme that came out was the need for early and responsive support and training for teachers with the LMS. Um, another idea that came out was the need to be able to, again, integrate all of the programs and the tools that teachers were currently using, all to be integrated into this one place for both teachers, students, and parents. And then finally, um, not only was it to be accessible and functional to parents, but it needed to house the communication to parents and students. It needed to house um, the ability to, stu uh, to see student assignments, and then also for uh, parents to be able to see that feedback loop between teachers and students regarding their students' learning. So once these features were determined, uh, they became the foundations that we used when we went to search for that perfect tool. Um, on the next several slides, Lindsay is going to take you through what that process looked like and the steps that we took. Thanks, Krista. Um, so on slide five, we're gonna look at um, kind of where we started. We started by looking at 10 different programs and how they kind of measured against each other and what would offer the best opportunities for us as a district. So we created a rubric that, inc that included all the educator and district needs for a platform. And we went through each of these programs with that rubric. We contacted colleagues at all levels of education and surrounding areas. And we also looked into what universities and junior colleges in the area are also using to kind of help scaffold our students for that college and career readiness. We looked, um, we looked at the integration with Skyward and WebEx, as those are two primary programs we use. The, we needed to have a platform that would integrate easily with those programs. Um, we looked at the learning tools interoperability, when, which means basically it would keep a secure exchange of information with using third-party vendors. And a lot of our teachers use Edpuzzle, Pear Deck, Padlet, and so all of those outside vendors will easily be secured and able to be accessed through a learning management system. And so we came up with Schoology and Canvas as our top two programs. Um, they, they were used by most of the people around us. They were 
um, interact, they were integrated with Skyward and WebEx. And so at that point, we decided we needed to build a team and we started to build that team. So on the next slide, we're gonna look at the team that we developed. We made sure to include teachers from all grade levels, elementary, middle, and high, administrators from elementary, middle, and high as well. And we were careful to make sure that all feeder patterns were represented. We also had student representatives and parent representatives on the team so that we could get the perspective of our families and how they would interact with the LMS and what would, they, what would be their preferences. And on the next slide, um, this, is this is kind of the frame of what we looked at on our rubric. So these are the categories we looked at, overall support and training, because that was one of the primary re requests from our staff on the thought exchange. We looked at how it aligned with their strategic plan in preparing our students for college and career readiness. We were looking at an intuitive design so that there weren't a lot of clicks to get through it, that it was pretty easy to maneuver. We looked at integrations with our current programs that our teachers are already using. And we looked at content and assessment and the management within the program and the collaborative opportunities teachers would have to build common assessments and common curriculum. And we looked at the communication features for both families and for our teachers. And finally, we looked at the cloud-based service and the security of that information and then the device compatibility. So that was it accessible to students on their phones if they didn't have Wi-Fi at home, but they could use their phone service. And so we wanted to make sure students had accessibility. So we're gonna talk to a few of our team members just to get some of their input. And Julie Oglesby is a social studies teacher from Indian Woods. Julie, can you tell us a little bit about your experience on the team? Julie, I think you're muted. Thank you. Are you there, Julie? I can go to Heather first, maybe. I see Heather. Okay, Julie, if you can hear me, we can't hear you. So wait just a minute. We're gonna listen to Heather Bledsoe from Shawnee Mission North. She teaches math. And Heather, could you share a little bit about your experience on our team? The experience was a very positive one. I felt the vendors were both very well prepared to showcase features of their product. We got to see the student side of the platform as well as the teacher side. So how we would create things and how students would interact with it. Um, they were also very good about answering questions in the moment on the Zoom chat. Like for example, as a math teacher, I had a question about using math symbols and um, notation and I, I got my answer um, as far as how we would implement that. Um, there's a lot of benefits that I've seen with going to Canvas. Um, I really like that all classes are on one page. Um, there's also a student calendar option where I can upload my assignments and other teachers can upload their assignments. So the student doesn't necessarily have to keep track of everything on their own. That's kind of done for them, um, which helps with late work and such. The online help option is phenomenal. There's 24-7 um, support every day of the year. Um, two-minute guarantee if you're contacting them via a web chat or a phone call. And there's a whole lot of training documents online, which I know since the school year's over, a lot of my colleagues will find very helpful. Uh, I really liked how I could um, set up an assignment based on standards and would automatically be able to track for me um, where students are in terms of exceeding, meeting, and um, needing a lot of intensive work on the standards, streamlined things quite a bit. And I know they mentioned the one-click access already, and 
I'm really excited about that. So that way students don't have so many passwords. And that's all I have. Thank you, Heather. Yeah. Julie, are you there? Okay. All right. So CC is a student from Shawnee Mission West. And CC, can, can you share just a little bit about how you think an LMS is going to help you as a student next year as a senior at Shawnee Mission West? Hi, can you see me? Okay. So like, it was just really, to me, I felt like it was going to bring my stress level down tremendously because of how organized it was. And me, I am involved in like basketball, track and orchestra. So I have a lot that I have to focus on. So that being organized really brought down, I feel like this is going to bring down my stress and I wish I had it like all my years of high school. But also like on top of that, um, the passwords, I do agree with that because I'm kind of stubborn. I don't write down my passwords. I feel like I can just remember them all um, and just go through, but I really can't. So I feel like just having to remember one password is going to be uh, really beneficial for me. Also, um, my mom, she's a really kind of a helicopter mom. And so I know that the fact that she can look and monitor what I'm doing at all times as well is going to really um, bring less stress on her. Um, and accessing it on my phone because I do I spend a lot of time on my phone. So I feel like that's going to because my computer sometimes it doesn't work. So I do think accessing it on my phone is going to be just really beneficial too. Um, overall, yeah, I think that's just it. And like having just one system instead of a whole bunch of others, because I do some of my teachers use Schoology, Canvas, and some of my teachers don't use anything at all. So just having just one overall, like having one teacher use one um, system, I feel like it's going to be really beneficial for me um, going into my senior year. And the fact knowing that some colleges that I'm looking at going to use this is um, just really makes me feel better about college. So yeah. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, no problem. And Julie got frozen, but she said she's back in. So Julie, are you there? I'm here if you can hear me. Yes, we can. <laughs> okay. Thanks, guys. Um, thanks for the opportunity um, to speak tonight. Um, so it's already been mentioned, and I'll just kind of reiterate that uh, community members made up of K through 12 students, parents, teachers, principals, along with uh, members of district leadership met to hear from both Schoology and Canvas. And the rubric was very extensive, um, but it was important that this platform be user friendly and easy to navigate, especially for students, since this would be used in all K through 12 settings. So we were really looking for a platform that would better serve the Shawnee Mission community based on this, the criteria here on this slide. Um, the vendor presentations included a look at the teacher, student, and parent view for each platform. And overall, both Schoology and Canvas were very similar in many areas of the rubric. Um, however, in training and support, uh, Canvas had a more adaptable approach in order to meet individual needs of teachers that may require some more assistance in using their platform. And then um, it also had 24-7, 365 day support for staff. So that was a big plus. Canvas also has the ability for a PLC or curriculum cadre to create a course template where teachers can easily share common assessments um, and daily work. And then I also wanted to speak just briefly about Google Classroom, since many teachers in our district currently use Google Classroom. And I get a lot of questions about 
how it's different from an LMS. So Google Classroom is essentially a communication tool. And while a LMS is also a communication tool and has similar features, um, it just does so much more. Um, for those that aren't super familiar with Google Classroom, teachers send assignments to students digitally. Students then submit work back to the teacher. They can also upload class material, videos, um, and there's some opportunity for class discussions on there, but an LMS like Canvas has an integrated discussion board that allows for more robust student collaboration. Um, a major difference is, like it was mentioned earlier, the, um, the system would directly come from Skyward, so we wouldn't have to add individual students in um, by a class code. And parents would also be able to see individual progress and feedback on assignments within the parent view, which is a huge plus since the Google Classroom Guardian access was pretty limited and would not allow parents to see student work or feedback unless they looked at their student side of the, of the program. Um, one of the biggest differences um, is that it links um, the grade. So a teacher can give feedback and assign a grade that will directly go into Skyward. Um, and I've had many parents ask me, um, so my student um, shows that they have a missing assignment in Skyward, but there's no missing assignment in Google Classroom. So I would have to explain that the two programs don't speak to each other. I have to manually go in as the teacher and um, fix that grade within their system. So lastly, um, with like a Google Form type of thing, an individual assignment, um, you can break down questions on an assessment for learning analytic purposes. Um, but with an LMS, it has an in-depth data collection and analysis tools for teachers, administration, and counseling to access, which can be vitally important to track student progress over time and find areas needed for growth and intervention. So overall, a teacher can still use the Google Suite and uh, Google Drive curriculum resources can be plugged directly into the platform, but an LMS will alleviate a lot of extra steps for all parties, teachers, parents, students, and it's gonna be housed in one system. And like it was mentioned earlier, if parents have multiple children in the district, they have one login, one location, and it has a dashboard for all of their students in the Shawnee Mission School District. So hopefully that answers some questions and I'll give it back to Lindsay. Thank you, Julie. Um, and then Lisa Grumman acted um, on the team as well. She was one of our administrative representatives. Uh, Lisa, are you available? Yes, hi. Um, I just wanted to take a moment. Um, everyone has articulated so well um, the many benefits of this particular learning management system. I think I wanted to speak briefly to just the process and really how I felt it was so cohesive in taking the feedback from the thought exchange, um, really focusing in on the rubrics, the rich discussion amongst all the stakeholders that were involved, um, and then really leading to this end outcome that will support our students our staff and our families um, in a very like in a foundational platform that gives them the communication, the tools, and access to everything that they need to really um, help our students and support our students in our learning. Um, and one of the things that was really um, important to me was really looking at the timeline. I thought it was really remarkable that this all came together in a very thorough process, but so efficiently to be responsive for staff who wanted as much time to plan 
and prepare as possible. So I just wanted to really acknowledge that um, and the leadership of this group and um, how you guided us through this process thoroughly, but did so in an efficient manner to maximize the time available um, for preparation. So thank you. Thank you, Julie. Um, on the next slide, uh, Chris is gonna talk about the results and, and what the scoring looked like with the rubric. So I might add that not only did we really pay attention to that criteria in the rubric, one of the advantages I think that we had during our vendor presentations um, to really draw upon our, our relevant experience that we were living in at the moment in that remote learning. And so each um, team member really had the opportunity to ask very relevant and pertinent questions. And they really um, were able to assess whether the tool was going to meet their needs. So after we had had those vendor presentations, we asked the team to join us in a debrief and kind of reflect on what was heard and share out with the team what they heard as important features. Ask them to complete the rubric and then the results are shown here. These outcomes are very reflective of our conversations and that the vendors provided. If you'll notice, they are also very reflective of the criteria that that teachers said were important to them as far as that um, ongoing PD and then the uh, process of having all of their tools and their programs integrated into one place. You can see those were where our scores reflected that conversation. Um, so with Canvas being the product of choice, if we go on to the next slide, we wanted to provide a very brief look into what an elementary student view looks like and a secondary view. Um, I want to preface that this by no means is a comprehensive look into all the features and capabilities, but what it does do for us is highlight the fact that Canvas shared with us that there is that capability to tailor the view for different age groups. So finally, on the next slide, if we think back to what Shawnee Mission educators voiced as being important to them, they indicated the need for early and ongoing support. And then in our assessment and reviews from current users, one of the outstanding features of Canvas versus the Schoology was the ability to offer that comprehensive menu of support and while also following that aggressive timeline. So um, this concludes our information that we were going to share at this time. Does anyone have any questions for us? Um, yes, we'll start with you, Ms. Bergman. Well, I just wanted to say, Cece, you sold me. So thank you for your analysis on the program. Um, can you just, you know, again, tell me what, what you really liked about this LMS? Cece? May have like. Oh, okay. Sorry, I, I don't know why it wasn't working. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. Okay. I'm like, can you see me? I just like, oh. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> like, um, can you re like rephrase that in a little bit? Yeah. What was your favorite thing about Canvas? Like, what was like? Oh yeah, we needed this years ago. Like, <laughs> what did? It, what sold you? I think it's the fact that it was all in one place for me because um. Cause I told you I'm involved in like a lot of school activities. Um, so I'm, so I'm getting home at like eight o'clock at night. 
Um, and so not having to search for all my assignments and everything really makes it helpful. And I'm a procrastinator sometimes. And so I will like say, I'm going to put something in my calendar or I'm like, I'll just do it later. And I, I never put it in my calendar. So, um, the fact that I know teachers can do that, um, and I can look at those due dates that really helps me. Um, and my mom, I talked about my mom because I, yeah, my mom just loves looking at what I'm doing all the time. Um, and so I feel like, so now it's just easier for her. So she doesn't have to come and ask me questions and all that other stuff. So yeah, so it'd have to be, oh, and the, the fact that it's linked to Skyward. So I don't have to go like through the, all that. It's like linked to that. So I can just look at that. I don't always have to look at Skyward. I thought that was amazing. So yeah, so I have to, it would have to be everything. I just really okay. liked everything. <laughs> You're so articulate. I love it. Yeah, I'm a bit of a skyward stalker myself. And so um, I'm really looking forward to learning a little bit more about Canvas. So like what, so it was pretty, I'm just like, pretend you're your mom right now. <laughs> so would your mom say it's pretty easy to use because sometimes as parents, it's like, oh my gosh, I have to learn. Um, you know, do you think it's like for moms like me? you think we'll pick up on it pretty easily? I think, I think definitely because my mom, she's not tech savvy at all. I'm okay. always helping her with her computer and her phone and everything. So, um, I do feel like it's going to be easy for her, um, to access. And even if it's not as easy, I could teach her in like literally less than like five minutes. Oh, good. So, um, yeah, I do feel like it's going to be easy or for her to access and like all parents that want to like watch over their students and stuff. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and then one other question is, so is it an app then? So if, if I want to just check it out on my phone, like how my kids are doing is it's just a simple app. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Awesome. Well, Cece, you're so articulate. I am so proud of you. Thank you so much for your feedback. Thank you guys for having me. This is fun. Jamie, I'm just going to jump in real quick in regards to the app. Um, yeah. We didn't mention this, but the app rating of Schoology versus Canvas was a huge push. Canvas um, app rating is extremely high for both parents, students, and teachers. Oh, that's so good. And I also, um, there's a 24-7 helpline. <laughs> that's another, that's huge, especially on, you know, because it's often on a Sunday night when you're going through and trying to figure out, oh my gosh, who's missing what, you know, when you have those, you know, Sunday dinner conversations and if there's a problem, it's nice that you can just access someone. So that's a huge benefit for parents, I'd say. Okay. Um, thank you, Ms. Borman. Let's run through everybody. Um, Reverend Guy, do you have any questions at this time? No, I don't. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Goodburn, do you have any questions at this time? I just wanted to hear about a little bit about the rollout and it's going to be completed by August of 2020, but what does the rollout look like? I don't know who, who would answer that. Michelle, maybe? I'll start. Um, and the best answer I can give you is there will be lots more coming in the next few days. We have a pre-planning meeting. Obviously, we couldn't really start that planning until we made it through tonight and get contracts signed. But our first meeting with them is Thursday afternoon where we will start that process and what it looks like. But it will be heavy uh, professional learning. On this summer, teachers would be able to use their self-directed time if they chose to. Um, we already have people asking for tutorials, even though school is technically out. 
And then uh, we'll have a large focus on the um, instructional fair that we have every year in the fall. And we've even talked about, you know, what that calendar looks like going into the fall, depending on um, what school looks like, right? And so we're working on that plan, but we can share an update definitely in the next couple of weeks with you all. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Sinclair, do you have any questions at this time? Just a quick comment um, of all the uh, benefits that have been articulated in this presentation. Thank you. The one that um, jumped out at me too seemed to be kind of an extra bonus. And I think Cece mentioned that is Johnson County Community College and other universities are using Canvas as a system. So we have our students helping bridge that connection from school to post-secondary because of a familiarity with the a system. So I, I love that making a secondary education more approachable from a familiarity they gain through high school. So I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Stratton, do you have any questions for this evening on this topic? No, no other questions on this other than it looks like a, a great step forward leveraging our technology and our systems in the district. So I'm glad to see this. I learned a lot today. Thank you. And Ms. Hembry, I think you are my last board member. Uh, do you have any questions on this topic? No questions. Great job. Great, thank you so much. And um, this is the CARES Act funding purchase. Is that correct, Dr. Fulton? Yes, uh, this is this is an allowable purchase under the CARES Act money. That's what we'll do initially, and then it will fold into capital after that. Once it, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Dr. Atha, I believe we'll use CARES Act for the first two years, and then after that we'll We'll move to the capital budget. That's accurate. That is that is correct. Thank you. And I did not seek the motion because we jumped into this when we were missing Russ on 5.1. So I'll seek a motion um, to approve 5.2, adoption of Canvas. Move to approve, Borgman. Thank you, Ms. Borgman. Do I have a second? I'll second, Sin Sinclair. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. Thank you so much for your presentation this evening, everyone. Thank you. Um, yeah, if I may, if I may, just very quick, I want to again thank the entire team that worked on this, and for all the people that participated in the thought exchange. You know, we are using that data, and for was extremely helpful as we selected an LMS system, and it will continue to be helpful as we uh, engage people with uh, a variety of topics moving forward. So. Again, to all you team members, thank you so much for uh, patiently waiting. Hey, you guys had a long slog to wait through there. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. So are we going to bounce back up to 5.1 and have Dr. Atha give that presentation? I, I believe, Dr. Atha, are we prepared to do that? I'm yes. back on. Oh. I'll tell you what, uh, <laughs> Mr. Knapp has had a few technical difficulties, and rather than me pitch in for him, uh, Take it, Russell. Yeah, I had to kick my family off of Netflix so I could have some bandwidth tonight. Um, so with us tonight to go over the uh, bond defeasance, the action item 5.01 is, is David Arterberry, who's been our bond financial advisor uh, for many years now. And he's with Stiefel Nicholas now, um, George K. Bond uh, with uh, Stiefel Nicholas. And so he's here to explain that and let the experts talk. So David, are you out there? Perhaps he's muted. 
he's he's on as a um, not a panelist, not a panelist um, attending. Uh, yes. if, if he's attending, he's not able to Wrong speak. Place. Yeah. Okay. I have him unmuted, but we can't hear him. Okay. Okay. Um, if you would, I will go ahead and present it. Yes, please. Um, okay. So this is the second year we've done the bond defeasance. We did it last year for the first time. Um, and so we're, the resolution that you're approving tonight is for 6.4 bond defeasance. Um, so basically, that is calling bonds when they, they become callable in October of 2022. So what that helps the district is stabilizes our mill levy in our bond and interest fund that we use to pay off our debt, our bond debt. Um, by putting money aside into an escrow, that takes debt off of our books, so it increases our bond capacity. So if we were to go out and do a bond referendum in the near future, our capacity will increase because this debt will no longer be on our books. Um, and then obviously, if you call your bonds early, um, you save future interest costs on your bonds. Um, so that's what that resolution is is doing, and it's up to six million four hundred fifteen thousand dollars. Okay, thank you. Um, does anyone have any questions for Mr. Knapp on this item? Okay, I did not seek the motion prior to the presentation, so I will seek a motion to approve item 5.1, the defeasance of the bond. So moved. so moved. Sinclair? Okay, so moved by Dr. Sinclair. Is there a second? Second. I think I heard Ms. Goodburn on that one. Um, so all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none opposed, that one passes unanimously. And down to 5.03, which is the first reading of approval of a new policy for a duty to report criminal offenses. Um, and I will look to Dr. Fulton and uh, Mrs. Goodburn to give us a recap of this item. I'm happy to defer to Mrs. Goodburn on this. Okay. Um, this is asking uh, the, for the approval of, uh, actually, this is a first reading, so it, the approval, if um, you guys so choose, will be next month. Uh, this is the first reading, so if you have any questions about this, this is GAPB. It's a brand new policy. It actually was not um, KSB um, in their recommended approval um, or policies, but uh, it's something that the administrators and our legal counsel in Shawnee Mission have put forth, um, and so this is only the first reading. And you can see the document actually on your screen right now that I'm seeing too, um, kind of gives some explanations for um, for the policy. Can anyone, can you guys see that? Mm -hmm. Okay, can you see what it says on the very top? Can we go any, but any, Matt? Yeah, there we go. I'll just, policy is being introduced to codify that all district employees are obligated to report to human resources if they are arrested, charged with, or convicted of a misdemeanor or felony so that the district can assess the severity of the criminal offense in relation to the employer's job duties and take appropriate responsive action. So if it's, as I said, it's policy. If you have any questions about it, or um, you can ask those now if you want to, or actually uh, have Dr. Fulton address those in between now and the next meeting. Um, that would be the best thing to do. And then he can 
get together, we can get together if we need to, if you have any questions or suggestions of different language or whatever. Great. Thank you. Okay. okay, so just a first read. We'll revisit that next month. Um, and then the next one is also a first reading 5.4 approval of revised board policy CGI administrator. Event. And so this is um, uh, this is had last updated in April of 2015. And so it's been updated to basically, um, as you can see in comment 2A, this policy is being updated to ensure compliance with KSA 72-2409 and to reflect district procedures for administrator evaluation. And then the bottom part of it is basically policy GBI addresses the availability of evaluation records for all employees and policy GAK addresses personnel records. So this language is not necessary. <clears throat> and I believe that um, we don't call it a manual for evaluation. We call it the handbook handbook for administrative handbook for administrators. And so that's why that was updated. So again, this is and the reason why we did a first read on this one for you all uh, was just because of the amount of changes to this current policy, since there was a few changes to it, um, even though they were KSB to comply with um, certain uh, uh, statutes and also uh, KSB recommended that since there was a lot of them, we, we decided to do a second, uh, second read on it. So that, again, we'll address this next month. If you have questions, you can um, uh, ask Dr. Fulton about those and he'll, he'll get with us. Thank you. Moving on to 5.5, this is the first and final reading, um, and we'll have Ms. Goodburn speak to it, but I make the motion so we can move it along, and then we'll get the second, and then we'll have her speak to it. So do I have a motion to approve? So moved. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. Do I have a second? Second by Ms. Hembry. Thank you, Ms. Hembry and Ms. Goodburn. Well, again, you can read right here, and I'll just read it really quick. This minor revision was included in the June 2019 KSB policy updates because policy GK allows for the superintendent or designee to suspend with pay for any reason. This policy should clarify the board action is only required to suspend an administrator without pay. Board action is not necessary to suspend an administrator with pay. The superintendent or designee has authority to do so. So basically, it's just clarification. And it was KSB right so that's why we said, and since it was a, a small revision, that's why we said first and final on this. Great, thank you. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Okay, passes unanimously. Cruising right along to item 5.6. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Um, approval to purchase BIST services for the 2021 20, uh, school year. Um, I'll seek a motion, we'll get a second, and then we'll have Dr. Fulton speak to it. Um, so moved, Sinclair. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Is there a second? Borkman, second. Um, I think I heard Ms. Borkman first on that, um, and then we'll turn it over to you, Dr. Fulton. Sure, thank you very much. And I'll have uh, Dr. Hubbard or a member of her team join me on this, but uh, uh, this is a, uh, is a support program for students, a behavioral support program for students that we use in our title schools, and we use title funds to pay for it. Dr. Harvard, do you want to take it from there and talk about uh, why we use title funds? If you use title funds? We've been using title funds since we initiated this um, several years ago, and you'll notice there are a couple of schools, uh, maybe just one, and Kevin Hansford's joining us as well. Broken Arrow was a title school and is no longer, and we have continued funding for Broken Arrow. And um, 
So we used Title IV to support Broken Arrow because we didn't want to take that service away after they already had it. Kevin, is there anything else you want to add regarding that? Uh, I, I don't think so. We, um, we also provide a, BIST also provides professional development to um, some of our non-BIST schools on um, professional learning days. They uh, allow their consultants to provide um, large-scale PD for us on those days to um, assist teachers with classroom management strategies and uh, behavior interventions. So they, they do assist all of our schools in that regard. I know one of the issues was uh, there was, you know, what schools that would have interest in having BIST expanded to them. What's what talk about the issues with the fact that you're limited in what you can do since these are tied with it when it comes to expansion to other schools in the district. So we do expand the professional learning piece piece. We send them to leadership BIST training and other um, professional learning that BIST offers as well as we bring BIST consultants in as long as it's a large group with our title schools. Um, the, the piece that we can't do is provide a BIST consultant to those schools. And that is because we would be supplanting funds. So if you pay for something in a title fund, you can't then turn around and provide it in the general fund. So anything that federal funds pay for should be um, in addition to what we would pay for for all schools or otherwise it's considered supplanting. And that is why if we wanted all schools hypothetically to be a BISAT, but it would all have to be paid for out of the general fund. So I have a question. Um, I know that BIST is a tried and true um, program. Also just curious about programs like Trauma Smart. Um, I know that in certain schools, um, you know, some social workers feel Trauma Smart may be a little bit more um, tailored to the, the needs of the kids at that school. And so how, what is the process like for evaluating? And I know that it's primarily at title schools, but how do you decide, um, you know, what's, you know, would get best versus like a trauma smart training and program? So we don't, it, we don't decide that. We let the building teams, uh, building leadership teams make that decision. For example, we have title schools that are not BIST schools and they use that funding for something else. Kevin, okay. correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Marion Park chose to use their money for Leader in Me. Is that correct? That's correct. And then, um, you know, other schools, we have a lot of trauma start schools throughout the district. We have PBIS schools. I mean, we have schools that wouldn't want to be BIS schools because mm -hmm. Trauma Smart is working for them. Or, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know um, Highlands is a big PBIS school and, and that's working for them. And so mm -hmm. building leadership teams make those decisions. Okay, that's good information. Thank you. Are there any further questions on this item? Just going to let folks speak up if they've got them. So we can move along if we need to because it's late. Getting... I would just I think it's probably better handled at a later date, but I think it'd be great to hear you mentioned PBIS and Trauma Smart and BIST, like and it sounds like there's a lot of variety between schools, but I would just be curious to know if each school is doing something and if we have any information about kind of what's working best and what kinds of settings and what the difference is between those different models. I won't belabor this agenda with those questions, but at some point I'd love to 
have some more dedicated time as a board to talk about to create more trauma-informed environments for our students. Yeah, that sounds like a great conversation that also needs more time. <laughs> but thank you, Ms. Embry. Um, so at this juncture, all those in favor, um, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Okay, hearing none, that passes unanimously. And uh, moving on to the last item on the action agenda, 5.7, approval to purchase the replacement video cameras and equipment for the communications department. I'll seek a motion in a second, and then we'll have uh, Mr. Smith speak to that. So moved, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Is there a second? I'll second, Sinclair. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Um, turning it over to you, David, to give us some information on this one. Sure. Good evening, board. Um, we have uh, cameras that we use for a number of different activities, including we have the studio, we have um, the graduations that we broadcast live, we have the uh, foundation breakfast event, and we have the programs, the categories, and the encounter programs. And the cameras that we use for those were purchased either in 2003 or 2007. Generally, with electronic equipment, you would put them on a five-year recycle. Um, well, five years from 2003 put a smack in the middle of the Great Recession, and we haven't been doing very well since then. So we've got these, this equipment is quite old. Um, the, 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 the boys are really good at you know, using bailing wire, duct tape, and chewing gum to make things continue to work. But we've been having some failures that make it clear that at some point, the system is, is going to collapse under its own weight. So this money, the money would come from capital outlay and it would allow us to replace the cameras that we use for those events. Um, we also, we're challenged because we do work, almost all of those events, we use uh, students to support us and to train them. Um, it's been a little bit challenging because we're training them on equipment that they will never see again, except perhaps in a, in a museum or in an electronics pile. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to having newer equipment that would allow us to train them on modern equipment that they would see if they went on to uh, additional work in that area. Uh, so that's, that's the general thing, but I'd be glad to answer any questions that you have. Thank you. Um, are there any questions at this time? I'll let folks ask them. Not, not hearing any, and I'm seeing shaking heads now. So we'll go ahead and vote on this one. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? I'm sorry, I was muted. Okay. Are there any opposed? All right, hearing none, that passes unanimously. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Thank you. Um, we made it to board comments. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll go ahead and get to board comments and just go through the list again. Ms. Boardman, do you have any closing remarks for this evening? Yeah, sure. Um, just some shout outs. I just want to give a shout out to the retirees in the district. Um, thank you so much for your years of service with Shawnee Mission. We are grateful for you and the mark that you have, have made on our district um, and a special thank you to Jane Miramontes. 
Um, I also want to just thank, you know, as the year is wrapped up, the students really buckling down in this crazy, challenging year. Um, so thanks for, you know, bearing with us and putting in the work and um, just getting getting your assignments in and, and you know, finishing strong. Um, I also want to thank the parents who found themselves suddenly um, in a role that we're all a little bit uncomfortable with, and that is the role of educator. Um, and so thank you to the parents who were patient with the district and um, really just, you know, did the work and put in the work to help kids. Um, just also a huge thank you to um, the IT department that really, um, got this crazy task done um, with COVID and distance learning in just such a short period of time. I don't know that there will ever be enough, um, you know, words to thank you for all that you've done for our district, but we are all truly grateful. And um, also just to the principals, it's been a rough year uh, for so many reasons, and you have shouldered so much of the burden. And um, we just wanna thank each and every one of you for, you know, just always having a smile on your face and um, showing up for your teachers, your staff members, as well as for parents and students. So we are grateful to each and every one of you. So thank you all so much. Thank you. Mr. Stratton, do you have any final comments for this evening? No, thank you. That was summarized well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Embry, do you have any final comments for this evening? I'd only add thank you to the Everty crew that came and fixed my power 30 minutes into this meeting when it went down so I could continue participating. <laughs> video, I was um, hollering gratitude out the door. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> um, that's quite the response time to have it go down during the meeting. I haven't come out and fix it that quickly. Uh, yes. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and Reverend Guy, do you have anything to close for this evening? Just to echo um, how grateful we are for all of those who are retiring this year, how sad we are that we couldn't do our typical celebration for all of the years of service that those educators and employees have given to our schools, our students. They invested years of their lives into our students and um, have left a legacy in their lives and it's um, it's very sad that we can't celebrate them and thank them for all they have done like we typically do at the end of the school year. I'm hoping that that will be rescheduled along with everything else, but we just want them to to know that we wish them well and hope they have a wonderful retirement and thank thank all of them for how they have invested in our students. And that's all. Thank you, Reverend Guy. Ms. Goodburn, do you have any final comments for this evening? I don't. Uh -uh. Thank you. Dr. Sinclair, do you have any final comments for this evening? I'd just like to jump on the gratitude there expressed by Ms. Borgman and uh, Reverend Guy. Uh, said it very well. Thank you. And to our district leadership for um, sifting through all the potential scenarios and the decisions um, that have to follow in planning for multiple scenarios moving forward. Thank you for processing all those questions every day. Um, thank you. And I'll just reiterate the thanks to everyone in the team, um, mm -hmm. to all of our teachers leaving. It's, you know, as everyone has said, it is really um, unfortunate that we aren't able to do the retirement send off and to give you your pins and to shake your hands and, and to let you know how much we appreciated your service to the district. And um, as Reverend Guy said, hopefully that will be 
able to be rescheduled. And if not this year, maybe we can just combine everyone into next year's and have double the amount of cake. I don't know. But um, in any event, we are going to move into executive session at this time. So I will seek a motion from Mary if she can um, make a motion for us to move into executive session. I know we need 30 minutes. And I would like to respectfully request 10 minutes between now and when that 30 minutes begins because I accidentally somehow broke my chair during this meeting due to <laughs> COVID-19 and I need to find a different chair. So that would put us at um, 9.55. 9.55, yeah. Okay. So I move we go into executive session to discuss legal matters with our legal counsel pursuant to the exception for matters which would be deemed privilege in the attorney-client relationship under coma and the board will reconvene at 9.55. Do we have a second? I'll second, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Okay. Hearing none, thank you so much. We'll see you all in 10 minutes at and 9.25. No additional business will be conducted, is that correct? That is correct. There will be no additional business after the executive session. Thank you. Thank you. See you very shortly. <laughs>